This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is the podcast about all things digital transformation, the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms that you might listen to your podcasts on. Uh, Great episode for you today. We're going to cover three major segments, as we always do. Uh, First segment to open the show, we're going to get into some hot topics as it relates to digital transformation. We're going to talk about bot shopping with baby formula shortages and the impact it has on baby formula shortages, which should be fascinating. I was not aware of that, so curious to hear more about that. Uh, We're going to talk about how instant payouts can drive attrition um, within organizational behavior and organizations in general. Uh, We'll talk about supply chain fixer software. We'll talk about Netflix's company culture. And we're also going to talk about data fabrics and their role in data management. Um, So a bunch of interesting topics, pretty broad area of topics there that we'll talk about in our hot topic segment to open the show. Um, Later in the show, we're going to do a really cool uh, panel discussion with several consultants from our team at Third Stage. Uh, We pulled a handful of consultants from throughout the world, and we basically just put them all in the hot seat and ask them a bunch of questions. We're going to do sort of a speed round, semi-game show sort of format just to ask some real, not simple questions, but we're looking for simple answers. And at the risk of oversimplifying some pretty complex questions, we just wanted to get, rather than doing more of a deep dive discussion into certain topics, we want to do kind of a broad flyover in a a speed round sort of a format. So it'll be a little bit different than some of the interviews we've had on the show in the past. So stay tuned for that. That'll be in the second segment of the show. And then finally, last but not least, uh, Kyler, we're going to play a clip from you in a live stream that you did re- recently related to human behavior and digital transformation, in particular, as it relates to employee burnout. So that'll be an interesting conversation to learn more about how digital transformations affect employee burnout and vice versa. But before we get to those later segments, let's run through some of these hot topics you have for us. Yeah, absolutely. So starting with those bots. Um, I didn't even know bot shopping was a thing. I, I guess I get it, like, and in, in the fact that they chase hot inventory items using bots um, or AI to kind of buy and swoop those up, right? Um, and they've done it apparently for advent calendars, seasonal goods, Lego sets, PlayStation, all those types of, of very high demand type of goods. Um, But some of the conversation around bot shopping has turned to infant formula, which we've seen a global shortage, specifically tough here in the United States, of just lack of inventory for something so necessary, like feeding your children, obviously. So there's this big um, 
internal debate among the community because typically what they would do is buy up all these goods and then sell them on an open marketplace for an inflated price however many of the bot handlers if you will <laughs> um, have, i guess um have used their um their their talents for good instead of evil so basically they've helped families find and buy up these formulas um, and there's a, a big kind of overall ethics conversation of is it okay to utilize technology when looking at um, these different ways in which you kind of back into supply and demand? And is it okay to resell them? Obviously, in, in the baby formula, being resold is kind of, you know, um, shady in that area. But I, um, I wanted to get your opinion on the overall concept of e-commerce and bot shopping ethics. So if you think that it's okay for these AI technology and fueled um, processes and systems to go in and identify hot inventory items and then buy them, or should there be some sort of regulation management around that? Well, that's a great question. And as a, you know, since I'm, I'm, talking to someone now that has a mother with young kids, I have to be careful. I have to tread lightly uh, on this topic. I, yeah. I feel like it's a, it's a setup maybe. <laughs> um, no, but I actually, it's a, that's a really good question. I know it's been a, maybe not, I, I think what's interesting about this question is that it's, we've had issues with bots in the past, like with live yeah. events. I know with concerts and sporting events, things that are in high demand, low supply, you get this whole phenomena of bots buying up inventory and then you know, allowing scalpers to resell tickets at a higher mm -hmm. price. But when you're talking about baby food, that's sort of like striking at the heart of like the ethical dilemma, because mm -hmm. it's obviously a necessity. It's not a sporting event. It's a, it's a necessity. And you're talking about babies. So, and um, yeah, so all that it really further blurs the, any perceived value or any perceived exception you might think is okay for, for bots. Um, you know, I, I think the, you know, maybe the, I'm, I know I'm skirting the question somewhat um, because on one hand I can see, you know, the value of it, yeah. it supply and demand, right? If people are willing to pay more and mm -hmm. whatever, then maybe they should have access to it. But obviously that totally alienates uh, a subset of the market that should be just as, uh, have, they have just as much right to get the food. So I guess, if, in, in, so rather than trying to debate the ethical question of it, I, I think the bigger maybe getting at the root cause of it is more, you know, we've got to fix the supply chain. You've mm -hmm. got to figure out the supply issue because that's the real issue. Supply is out of whack. And when supply is out of whack and there's shortages and people are fighting for food uh, as they are here in the United States and other parts of the world, um, that, that kind of behavior is going to happen. It's not, mm -hmm. doesn't make it okay, but it's not really, the, the problem isn't that there's bots out there buying up baby food. The problem is that there's not enough baby food. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the key that we've got to get at is how do you, how do you fix that problem? And it's how you do, you're just going to have more issues like this. So right or wrong, it's there. I don't know what you do to get rid of it in the short term, because it is a short term crisis that hopefully goes away soon, but it's an immediate crisis. So um, I think the, yeah, the, lo the longer term answer is to get more supply. Easier said than done, of course. Yeah, right. I think it's interesting. Um, you know, obviously, this is a, a tragedy for a lot of families that are struggling to feed their infants, which, you know, as a mom of two young kids, I definitely would feel that luckily mine are out of the formula phase. Um, but I think it's it's kind of refreshing to see within their own um, sub community, this technology based group is calling each other out. 
and in the fact that they will go in and find whomever is scalping these formula pieces and then completely call them out within their overall community in these different platforms. So it kind of shows that there is a human component. There is a moral component behind these different, you know, um, you kind of controversial, you know, technology um, pieces. So I think that's just an interesting perspective to kind of look at that watchdog within their own communities. Yeah. And what's interesting is even in a, in a lesser uh, critical product or service like concert ticket sporting event tickets, mm -hmm. even in there that it's highly, my opinion or my perception is that it's considered highly unethical for mm -hmm. bots to go in and buy up inventory. And, and of course we can all live without concerts and yeah. sporting. I mean, we may not want to, but we could, we could live without it, but we can't live without baby food or we can't yeah. have healthy kids without baby food. So it really furthers the ethical uh, dilemma there for sure. So that is pretty cool though, that you have an industry that's sort of calling itself out and yeah. maybe there's a time and place for bots, but you know, infant food, I, it seems like that's, that's really pushing the limits of where you should be arbitraging supply and demand like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, switching gears a lot, actually, I was about to say a little bit, but it's, it's a little bit, you know, less heavy in, you know, than feeding babies. But um, I wanted to talk about this concept of instant payments, which we've kind of covered a little bit in the past, especially in that fintech type of trending content that we really did that research into. Um, a new payments study found that 52% of adults in the United States here typically live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and, you know, that's over half, right? Uh, and the same study found that employee turnover could be cut as much as 27% by offering access to same-day wages. So kind of this gig working economy has been the really pioneering piece of this. And they reference in this case study Grubhub specifically, that is now um, offering that to its service providers. Um, and then another staggering statistic that I'll share before I actually um, ask you my question is the same study sound 50 for 51% of workers said they would switch jobs if it meant faster access to their wages. And this number jumps to 70 or 76% among uh, products as a service, right? So the hotel, restaurant, those types of workers um, as well. So it's it's interesting that it's kind of industry by industry specific. I wanted to see if you felt like this was going to be, this instant payment was going to be a, a main trend, not only maybe on the employee side, but also on the customer side of, you know, having to wait less between that instant gratification or that e-commerce service. Yeah, I think it's, you're seeing it across the board. You're seeing cycle times cut, you know, whether it's getting products faster, if you're a consumer, whether it's getting inventory faster, if you're a manufacturer or a distributor. Um, and I think sort of next up is the employee side of things. And I think right now where we are, you have a couple of things that are creating a, a perfect storm or a perfect opportunity for that sort of FinTech to catch on which is obviously the technology itself exists now that didn't exist before where there's products and tools and services that are available to organizations to pay their people faster and to not have to wait for a formal a payroll cycle mm -hmm. uh, to be able to pay people. In fact, we work uh, pretty closely here at Third Stage. We work pretty closely with one of the uh, leading banks in, in the Americas that is doing just that. And it's really interesting to learn more about that. Um, 
but I think, you know, that's, it's sort of like, and it's just like anything else, anything you do to shorten that cycle time, that's where the pressure is going to come in. I mean, you, employees are going to pressure employers mm-hmm. to pay faster. Employers are going to be under pressure, not just because the employees are um, demanding it, but also because it's such a tight labor market right now, which is the yeah. other thing kind of converging right now is there's it's people are fighting over talent. And if I can pay you faster than the next person that might be trying to hire you, that, that could easily be a, a way to sway you. And, and those are pretty interesting statistics to share, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, in, in more of those frontline face-to-face working environments, that is something that is highly desired. I wonder if it will ever kind of climb up into more of, a. uh, um, an upper level corporate world or those types of things um, to see if that is something that, you know, we, you could potentially either give the employee their full paycheck or access to their overall funds immediately. Um, I think it would be interesting too, not only from a logistic standpoint, but also the overall loyalty of the employee and their satisfaction within the company culture because it kind of speaks volume to hey we value you so we're going to pay you for your work right now and i think that would be a huge competitive advantage in this labor market too for both you know frontline workers and then also um, more of corporate cultures yeah and and actually uh here's here's my attempt to bring it back to the previous topic to create a tie here but we were talking about ethics there and you know one of the ethical things that i think this sort of technology and the sort of movement that you're talking about uh, with fintech and, and earlier paid employees is creating is that you know loan sharks and payday loan type of mm-hmm. companies that charge 20 25% annual interest to get in advance just for a few days you know th- those have been cracked down on and frowned yeah. upon by governments throughout the world um, i know here in the united states where you and i are that uh, a couple decades ago, going back to the early 2000s, I remember that was a big deal to sort of crack down on these payday lenders. So it, in some ways, it's it's creating a it's satisfying a need because obviously people want to be paid sooner, especially people that do live paycheck to paycheck, which studies have shown is a majority of the population does. Um, and it sort of negates or takes away the need for these loan sharks. They're not regulated and, you know, create some ethical dilemmas for for organizations. So I think there's just a lot of things that would point favorably to this whole this whole trend here yeah absolutely i even have like one of those ad songs in my head right now i won't sing it but if you (laughs) grew up in colorado you probably know which one i'm I'm thinking of but um yeah i think that's that's a definitely a, a valuable lens to take as well um and speaking of kind of that niche marketplace or, you know, being able to add value to organizations, recently CNBC, the media company, just released their uh, list of top 50 disruptors as far as companies um, within their marketplace. And one I wanted to tell you about that I think is really interesting is called Flexport technology. And basically that comes in and optimizes supply chains um, and then uses kind of real time data in conjunction with resourcing or labor shortages um, to get a company through their supply chain issues. So it's very focused and it's very data driven and reactive in the fact that it utilizes AI and forecasting. Um, So very supply chain management um, focused. Uh, So they basically have come in and addressed uh, an industry or a a process in which is broken. Obviously, the global supply chain has had its challenges in the last few years, which has led this company to actually raise $900 million um, in their third round of funding uh, 
uh, to be able to offer this service to their customers. Um, so I wanted to kind of leave you with, uh, before I ask my question, of a few other disruptors on this list, because I think you'll really kind of like some of these ideas. Um, so you have GoPuff, which is a food delivery service, um, and then Zipline, which uses drones to deliver medical essential equipment. It's delivering for Walmart now. Um, and then Gesto is a grocery delivery company in Mexico. And then Airspace uses artificial intelligence to manage shipping um, time-sensitive cargo, such as human organs for transplants. So um, a really cool kind of list of new technology. But what they all have in common is they really hone into a niche need, whether it's healthcare, food and beverage, those types of areas, and have made technologies focused on a specific industry or consumer group. So my question is to you, do you think that's going to be a continued trend as opposed to maybe a, a holistic offering or, you know, an Amazon one size meets all platform, but more of these niche type of services and technologies for not only the customer, but also organizations. Do you think that's something we'll continue to see moving into 2023? I do. Um, I think there's there are going to be niches like that. They're constantly going to be opening up as a result of the the mass scale that companies like Amazon and Alibaba have, have gained over the years uh, globally. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like when we, you know, when we're advising our clients, for example, on digital transformation technologies, we say the same thing that a lot of times, you know, they're looking for that big, broad, mm -hmm. massive ERP or enterprise wide technology that can solve all the world's problems. But with that comes deficiencies and gaps because it can't be everything to everyone within any one organization. So you inevitably, see the pendulum sort of swing back and forth between single technology that tries to be everything to everyone versus niche best of breed solutions that do certain things better than that single enterprise wide technology can. And I think the same thing is, is something you see here in any industry or any market is it's great that Amazon and Alibaba have built these highly scalable, massive mm -hmm. business models. They're highly profitable now after decades of losing money, they've sort of, they finally built up that scale and revenue base to be profitable. Um, but in that quest, you know, have they missed out on certain niches? And I think that there's always going to be specialty niches that open up uh, to create more opportunity. The question, of course, is can those organizations scale as much yeah. or even close to as much as Amazon or Alibaba? I think that's the bigger question. But I think, you know, certainly having smaller niche players mm -hmm. uh, is certainly healthy for competition. It's also healthy for, you know, meeting customer needs. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a really interesting um, list of of new innovations, which I think is, you know, something that could definitely grow on that platform to something bigger. But it's cool to see just basically those um, more focused type of providers and services come out of that list. It was fun to kind of read about all of the different amazing things human beings think of um, when they're stuck in their houses during a pandemic. So, right. <laughs> um, one of the other things I want to talk about when we are going into company culture is basically Netflix. And this has been kind of top of, of line about Netflix had a record number of losses when it came to oversubscribers. And we all know that's because they cracked down on a brand pillar that they used to promote. Hey, share your mom's password, share so-and-so's password to just get that exposure. But that model, essentially, they were losing billions of dollars. So they um, 
they cut into that. So that's one of the reasons they've been in the news. And then also they came out with a new company culture guidelines that basically says to employees that when you um, don't like the content you're working on, maybe Netflix isn't the right place for you. So basically they came out in, in a very staunch opposite of what a lot of companies, especially bigger temp tech companies are doing right now because of lack of resources and, um, you know, trying to be the most employee um, centric experience. But they basically said, if you don't like working on the shows that we have here, you can, you should leave. And I almost feel like that's kind of a refreshing approach for a company because it, it hides all of the red tape or the, uh, the transparency, you know, of we want to convince you to stay, but we're not actually going to change our policies. They just straight up say, you know, as an organization, we might, we not, we might not be right for you. So I wanted to get your reaction to that and in more of that direct format. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that story, but I, I think it's, uh, it's in some ways unfortunate they they've gotten to this point because mm -hmm. I think they have been hit so hard. You know, the stock price was down at one point like sixty percent or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because of the, a lot of a lot of things contributing to that, mainly the fact that they're losing subscribers. And um, you know, I think there's been questions around some of the content they've been pu uh, pushing out lately. But I think it's you know what, what's really interesting about it though is you know I think one thing that I struggle with as a as a leader, and I see other organizations struggle with too is you sometimes you have to make trade-offs between satisfying your customers and satisfying your employees. And, and mm -hmm. it's not always, you hope that in most cases, you know, it's pretty well aligned and helping your, your um, customers is going to help. You can, you can satisfy your customers and satisfy your employees at the same time. Uh, but in some cases you can't. And then, and then the ethical or the, the million dollar dilemma that comes up is which is more important. You know, on one hand, you can't service your customers if you're losing employees and you don't have a great team. On the other hand, it doesn't matter if you have a great team if your customers don't like what you're doing. And I think what Netflix is experiencing right now is they're finding that uh, our, a, our customers aren't liking the content as much as they have in the past because we're losing hundreds of thousands of subscribers in a, in a quarter. Um, and secondly, I think what they're also realizing is, wow, this is a really highly competitive environment now since covid i mean mm -hmm. a lot of organizations a lot of media companies have really fast-tracked this whole streaming service concept I and mean, look at all the different options that are out there it's it's borderline ridiculous how many options are, are available so i think they're just sort of uh and maybe this is their own sort of internal wake-up call um and i think the other thing too is you know you have to have that alignment too if, if their mm -hmm. vision is to produce certain types of content uh, whether you agree or not you need a team that's aligned with that and if you're not aligned then it's probably not the right place for you anyway and you, you probably there so you might as well go find something that's more aligned with your personal beliefs and vice versa they can't succeed with a team that's not aligned so i think it makes sense on a lot of fronts i think maybe they just waited too long and i think they probably let the inmates run the prison for too long and now they're sort of saying hey that wasn't working so well so now we're gonna draw a line in the sand and say you know we've got to be profitable we've got to get back to growth and if you don't like the way we're doing it then you should go somewhere else. Now, having said that, I fully understand that that's not cool. That, and that's not yeah. popular, modern management leadership, uh, acceptable behavior to say, you know, either you like what we're doing or you don't. If you don't like what you're doing, leave. I mean, that's not really, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that was more the mentality for a lot of corporations. Yeah. But I think in some ways, though, corporations have gone too far of an overreaction mm -hmm. to that and said, well, let's just be 
totally employee centric and, you know, satisfy our employees. And again, you, you, you have to do both. You have to find a way to straddle that fine line. And I think the pendulum has swung too far either way in some cases. And this is them probably just trying to settle back in the middle somewhere. Yeah. I completely agree that adjustment, you know, it, it seems to continue to tick and tick and tick and tick. And then you you have to remind yourself that we are a business, right? It's our job to make money. It's pretty simple. Um, I think one of the, the best pieces of career advice, because I always have been, my mom always calls me the squeaky wheel. Like when there's a problem, I just can't handle it. Like I need to um, fix it or surface it or bring air to it, especially within like a corporate culture. And one time someone told me when I worked for a, a big corporation that, you know, you're, you can change a lot of things, your mindset, you know, how you view your life here, your role, you can grow and you'll probably be promoted like you have before, but you're never going to change the values of this company. And like we talked about last week with Walker, is that association, I think a lot of times needs to rely within the unique individual of the employee, right? Having that awareness to just know what's right for you and what's the right role for you uh, is is really the responsibility of a lot of people in those specific roles is just my opinion on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So we'll round out our hot topics in here um, with data fabrics. Um, so this is kind of an, an interesting concept basically data fabrics for those of you that don't know what that is because I didn't know what that is um, I don't is, okay great um, is an AI based data management um, process that's designed um, for basically environments that are are very complex and integrated they kind of support the data delivery and that connected tissue of the organization. Um, so these business environments, a lot of times are federated environments or environments that work together through a lot of um, different silos within their organization or um, share some some sort of shared services. Think about like a subsidiary of, of different companies that might share the same system. But basically, they are designed and the AI technology is designed to actually pull out data from a consistent system or a centralized system and look at what is going to be most valuable to whatever delivery they're bringing it to. So say you were a certain department, you would get a different dashboard than the accounting department, or if you were a subsidiary or a franchisee in, in um, France, then you would get a different one from the one in the United Kingdom, those types of things. And the data fabrics actually pull those out, identify them and um, and forecast them. So I'll share since I've just been a statistic whiz today, I'll just share a few more from an IDC research study that I was reading. Um, and it says 44% um, uh, of CEOs say they don't have enough data to support decision making. And 83% of those same CEOs want companies to be more data-driven. So obviously data is a huge trend within the technology industry. Um, and I, I'm just wondering what your reaction is to that in using AI to, to actually optimize your data. Because usually data is the optimization tool, not coming in to optimize data. <laughs> you know, So it's, it's almost like this weird full circle. Uh, but thinking of AI that can go in and predict the most valuable insights and actionable insights to your overall personal or, I guess, individual department-based, franchisee-based strategy is a really interesting concept. And I wanted to get your reaction to that. 
Yeah, I think it is. It, and it's a good reminder, again, that, you know, to, to your point, just to reiterate your point that um, AI, machine learning and uh, predictive analytics, some of these data centric technologies don't mean anything. They're, they don't do you any good mm -hmm. if, if your data is not um, intact and it's not accurate. So you're, you might you might be getting reports or analytics or um, algorithm driven sorts of analyses from your systems, but it's highly likely that it could be inaccurate and correct if, uh, if the data is not accurate. What was that term that you introduced to me a few weeks ago is about data, not it's, it's about basically sabotaging the data, creating dirty data. Oh my gosh. Um, um, data manipulation. I remember that um, piece, but it was like, Something you about yeah, I should have written it, written it down because we were calling we were kidding around and we were yeah. you were calling oh you were calling me the name whatever it was you were you were accusing me of being oh wow <laughs> calling Jeez, me that sounds aggressive yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very aggressive it was very uncomfortable <laughs> uh, for me at the time but uh but I survived I'm sorry you know, about so. that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. these hot topics no, just really get my intensity level up so <laughs> I know yeah these hot topics are no joking around here. Uh, but anyway, whatever that topic, whatever the name was, I guess isn't as important as the concept of um, making sure that you're not manipulating or sabotaging the, the data or, or creating dirty data that undermines the value of that sort of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the coolest finding that is the most simple of this study is more than half of American office professionals at least say they spend more time searching for files than working. So this system yeah. goes in and finds all of the relevant files and, and documents. So even that organizational piece, I think is super key um, as well. But again, it can help you clean up your data. That's part of the data fabrics and, and the overall master data management strategy. But ultimately, you're going to have to set up that architecture within your overall processes um, moving forward to ensure that any additional data that's captured can be optimized and organized or it's totally obsolete to your point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we discussed a ton of hot topics, and so I'm excited to kind of go into all of the topics we discussed with the team, um, which was cool for me because usually I'm not on these specific live streams, um, so it was really fun to be able to interact with them in a, a more kind of fun environment. And I was really surprised by some of their answers, I'll be honest. Like, I was trying to forward think, like, what so-and-so would answer, and I was wrong a few times, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I was too, and uh and just to give you some a preview of what we're going to have next after a quick break, we're going to bring a panel of, I think it was what five or six other consultants uh, from our team throughout the world at Third Stage Consulting. Um, we have them on the show to do so, sort of a, a flyover speed round sort of Q&A session. Um, so we, we basically put them on a hot seat, ask them a bunch of questions related to best practices and um, their top choices for um, you know, for example, what makes a digital transformation most successful or what's the number one thing to make your digital transformation successful or what's the number one reason why transformations fail? What's the most important change management tactic? Mm -hmm. So we're sort of trying to force them into a box, which is extremely uncomfortable for consultants. It, and it is for me, too, which is why it was so fun, because I didn't have to be the one backed into a corner or put into a box. I, I got to put other people in a box <laughs> and or at least try to put them in a box. And uh, we also take audience uh, questions as well. So mm -hmm. it's a really cool session and um, we're going to, Kyler and I are going to facilitate that discussion and, and uh, play you that clip. When we come back, uh, we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, so be sure to check us out there. You can also check us out on any of the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe, comment, share the podcast with others. We'd love to get the uh, content out to as many people as possible. So if you have team members or colleagues or peers or executives on your team that you think might benefit, please be sure to share this podcast with them. So I'm excited for our next uh our next segment here, because this is something totally different that we've never done before. And that is basically, instead of bringing on a guest or two guests and doing sort of a one-on-one interview, we're going to bring on a panel of people and try and get uh, quick responses on a lot of things here. So um, I have a list of questions that I'm going to start with, and we're going to take audience questions as well on this. And it's really just general digital strategy, digital transformation, sorts of best practices, things around uh, what's the number one key to success, why do projects fail, um, you know, is it cloud versus on-premise, single ERP system versus multiple ERP systems, that sort of thing. Those are the sorts of things we want to dive into and just get knee-jerk reactions from consultants that tend to overthink things, myself included, mm-hmm. and just get a get a knee-jerk reaction. So it's sort of a speed round format. So if anything, you don't like a topic we're talking about, we're going to move on to the next one <laughs> soon enough. So the good news is it's hard to get bored, I think, in this, this sort of a conversation. So uh, that all being said, let's let's jump into the conversation here. So with that all being said, I'm going to go around real quickly and introduce who we have on the panel discussion here today. And then we're going to jump right in and start asking questions. We're going to do real quick intros. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but I'm just going to go in the order that I see people on my screen, which I think is the same way the audience sees it too. Um, so I'm going to start with um, with you, Nate. So uh, with me first uh, to your, for those of you watching just to the right of me, is Nate Stroher, who is a a practice lead at Third Stage Consulting based here in Denver. Uh, Nate, thanks for being here today. Good morning, Eric. Excited for the format. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. And then we also have Michelle Weiss, who's uh, senior manager at Third Stage Consulting. Michelle, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. She's joining us from, from New York today. And then uh, Teresa Richardson is a director at Third Stage Consulting in the U.S., uh, joining us from Arizona. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Hello. Hello. That's Teresa. And we have confirmed that her uh, her we, we can read her handwriting and everything, so we're good there. <laughs> and then, awesome. Yes, it is. And then we also have uh, Greg Benton, who is our chief strategy officer at Third Stage Consulting based out of Denver as well. Greg, thanks hey, for being here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. And then the guest that is joining us from the furthest from where I am today is that 
uh, recognition goes to Clifford Martin, who's joining us from our office in Cape Town, South Africa. So Clifford, good afternoon, almost evening. Uh, thanks for being here today. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Uh, good day to everybody around the world and uh, very excited to be representing Africa. So please uh, pop into the chat if, you, if you're based in Africa. Thank you. Yeah, good good point. If you yeah, if you're based uh, in anywhere, if anyone's based in one of the cities we mentioned, Denver, Arizona, New York, or South Africa, or countries, I should say, um, drop that in the chat. We'd love to love to hear from you. So, so just to sort of get started, thing uh, on things here um, with with this format, what we wanted to do again, we're going to go through a lightning round. We're going to get the the panel responses here. We're going to get audience responses to each of these questions. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask, we're going to give the uh, panel just a few seconds to respond to each of these questions, and then uh, we'll, we'll ask the audience as well. Um, but the first question I have for the panelists here, and again, just sort of in the theme of giving a broad brush, broad-based view of what makes digital transformation successful, just to kick things off, first question I have for the panelists here is what is the biggest key to digital transformation success? So if you could just if you could just put it just write it down on and uh, Teresa already had her her answer ready. In fact, we were joking before we went live that you your answer to everything is probably going to be change management. It so is. Just, the question it's is, it's just change management. That's all it is. Efficiency. All right. So I'm actually just going to run around here, and it looks like we've got oh. a few responses already. Um, so Nate says buy-in is is important. That's that's definitely a good one. Similarly, Michelle says executive support. Teresa says change management. Greg says clearly understood objectives for change. And then um, Clifford says defining transformation. Very good responses. So I guess I'm going to pick on you, Teresa, just to elaborate a little bit why. And I'm only asking you this because I know you already had that piece of paper pre-written with change management. For everything. <laughs> so, so why change management? Why do you think that's the most well, important thing? It's important because, in my opinion, um, the entire organization needs to buy into it. They need to adopt it and use it. If you spend millions of dollars or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on a transformation and nobody uses it, you know you have a problem. So, in order for it to be accepted and take hold, the organization needs to understand it. They need to buy into it. They need to support it. They need to be involved in the process and use it. Makes makes total sense. And then Greg, you, can you show your response again? I think you had, was it clearly defined goals and objectives? Yeah, yep. many times uh, organizations go into the, uh, the idea that they're going to digitally transform. They really don't have it well-defined. They really don't have the objectives for the outcome of that digital transformation. In other words, if we implement all of the uh, the technology, the people, the process changes that uh, Teresa was talking about, what is our return going to be? What is the organization going to look like in a year, in five years? And I think very often organizations don't put enough planning up front or strategy up front into what's going to be needed to accomplish that change. And not just uh, paving cow paths, as we say, with the, uh, with, the, with the new technology, but actually changing the organization for the better. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And actually what you're saying actually helps enable some of the other stuff like executive support, the buy-in that, that Nate and Michelle talked about. Um, certainly change management can be more effective when you have clearly defined goals and objectives. 
Um, I'd also be curious from the audience, what which one of these uh, panelists do you agree with? Do you disagree or what did we miss? What would you add to the mix? We'd love to hear from the audience here in terms of what you think the most important key to digital transformation success is. So please feel free to drop in the chat. Also, as we're going here, if you have questions you want to ask the panel, um, be happy to take those as well. They don't know what's coming anyway, so you might as well uh, we might as well take some audience questions as well. Um, so please feel free to chime in uh, with any questions you want to ask here. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question here. Um, and it's somewhat similar, but we're sort of flipping it a little bit from the previous question. And that is, what is the number one reason why digital transformations fail? Oh, man, how much paper do you guys have? <laughs> Three's only one piece of paper, apparently. It's all right. It fits. She didn't even bring a pen. She just already had that prepared. She just... <laughs> ah, I've been prepared since last night. <laughs> all right. Uh, before we get to all the responses here, I'm going to I'm going to show a comment here that we had uh, on YouTube and the, the, their response here on YouTube was defining the transformation for the business and for people. So that was uh, uh, an interesting point of feedback. And I agree with that. People, the better they understand what the 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 um, the, the goals and objectives are, the better better off it's going to be. All right. So the number one reason why they fail, uh, Nate, you said lack of vision goals. Um, Clifford says misaligned expectations. Uh, Michelle says wrong people driving change. Interesting. Come back to that one. <laughs> Teresa said, oh, what? Change management. <laughs> wait, 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 change management. Balloon. And then wait, Greg has a balloon. I, how did you, well, there's, I have a lot of questions. That's you great. know, I, I didn't know these questions were going to come up, but I did have the balloon. <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. You I can't wait to see what other props uh, you just might in have. Just case you need it, like to burst someone's bubble, you just have spare balloons <laughs> laying around. That's funny. Right. That's super funny. So, Michelle, what? show me your response again. I remember I wanted to come back to it. No, I already forgot what you said, but it was really good. Um, oh, we lost. Hold the one second here. Well, while um, Michelle's queuing yep. up, just a reminder for our audience, Michelle represents um, all of our Latin American um, clients down there. So, Michelle, if you want to say hi to our Spanish speakers in language, definitely feel free to answer anything in Spanish today. Okay, I will. <laughs> Hola. That's about as <laughs> uh, Thank you I, for that lesson, Eric. That I awesome. have a boss that said, I know how to speak Spanish. Salsa, taco, guacamole. You know, I'm like, that's not Spanish. I'm sorry. All the essentials. Definitely. So so the wrong people driving change. Explain what you mean by that, Michelle, or why that's a, a risk or a failure point for transformations. Um, what I was getting at is sometimes the people that are driving the change aren't the people that the workers, um, you know, feel like they want to follow or, you know, um, respect. Um, so I know that that's happened in a couple of projects where the people that are driving that change aren't actually the ones that are um, respected by the organization. And, and so. Right. Like they don't have credibility or yeah credibility that type of thing and but they get put on a project anyway just because maybe they have the time or um they have a certain role but it doesn't mean that the people that need to change are going to necessarily want to because of of the people that are are driving it 
So the people driving change, do you ever see where the people that are responsible for driving change are the ones that are most stuck in the past? Like they don't want to drive the change or they, they, they want to drive their definition of change that maybe doesn't align with the overall goals and objectives or what have you seen there? Um, more, more that, you know, people just decide not to do it because they don't respect the person or the person doesn't have the, um, the, uh, power to really, you know, drive that change. Um, so, uh, I think selecting the right people to, to manage that or to make sure that they're communicating down to the people that are having to do the change, having those people well selected is really important. Um, so that's why I put that. Gotcha. So here's here's a comment or question that I think only you can help us with, Michelle. Yes. I was like, no, uh, people are talking to us in Spanish. Yeah. So, Elias, Elias, sorry, Elias is saying that yeah, the wrong people are the ones pushing the change. So it's kind of the same thing that I'm that I'm saying. Nice. So we've got we've got some Spanish translation happening in the chat, which is perfect. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. My glasses uh, to read that little small name. So I apologize <laughs> if I butchered that. It, it is it is hard to read for sure. Um, and then Greg, we had to come back to it. Um, your prop is highly effective, uh, as is the message on your your balloon prop. But uh, the comment here is inflated expectations is the best answer with balloon. But um, so at least one person watching agrees with you, Greg. What, what tell us what you mean by that, or why is inflated expectations? Why is that a problem, or how does that lead to failure? Well, I, I think that people believe that uh, going into a digital transformation means that everything will come out on the other end as a technology change without any any real effort and support the organization in the way that um, that is envisioned going forward, and. That often comes with a, uh, a lack of clear transformational plan, objectives, and uh, even the governance internally to, uh, to make that happen. And uh, very often the, the strategy piece and really understanding where you want to go as an organization, this kind of goes along with what do you see as success for digital transformation is understanding what change is going to happen and how it's going to affect the organization and the return on investment as a result. Gotcha. Yep. Makes, makes total sense. And, uh, I, I agree with that. There's a lot of, that seems to be a root cause for a lot of other problems that people mistakenly think is the real cause of, of uh, failure. For example, change management back to Teresa's point, you know, if I have unrealistic expectations, chances are fairly high. I'm going to cut change management because I had unrealistic expectations and I need to force fit my project into a timeline or, or uh, budget. So you end up cutting something like change management and then you blame change management for the reason why the project failed when really maybe it was because you had unrealistic expectations all along. Okay, we're here having a panel discussion with several consultants about digital transformation best practices. We're going to continue that conversation when we return with more transformation ground control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler and I are in the middle of a conversation with a panel of consultants talking about digital transformation best practices. A couple other comments here just to, related to that, to that uh, question. Comments from the audience here on YouTube. Um, Tanash, Tanesh uh, on YouTube says lack of support for management. Um, Sam Graham, who is with us, joining us uh, as, as a regular, is happy to translate if required. He's, he's joining us from Spain, so he, he can certainly, I assume he's fluent in Spanish. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Sam, but I, I assume you're talking about Spanish since you, you're living in Spain now. Um, and then uh, another comment from Patricia on LinkedIn uh, says, sponsored ghost. Um, so I, that gets back to the, the you know, driving the change. Um, money, authority, and need. Uh, man, money authority <laughs> need. I've I've never heard of that acronym. Uh, that's from VJ on LinkedIn. So thanks for that comment. I'd be curious to hear what you mean by that. Um, I've never heard of that acronym before. So, um, and then one last comment here. Uh, last but not least, another. This is from Parisa on LinkedIn. Another big challenge is not taking full ownership of your digital transformation and relying too much on the system integrators. It's a really good, good response, and I totally agree with that. Um, you, you do have to have a certain amount of ownership and back to that driving change. It, it, you can use outside help, but you need that internal, you need those internal faces and, and credibility experts within the organization to drive the change. Okay. So I'm going to get to the next one here. Um, here's a, an interesting question that I, I think we don't ask ourselves enough, which is what is the biggest potential benefit of digital transformation? So when you look at all the clients we've worked with, what is that? You know, what's the number one benefit or potential benefit that you see clients realizing or that they should be realizing, but they're not? Um, give you a few seconds to respond there. Biggest, biggest potential benefit of digital transformation. I feel like we need some Jeopardy music, like do, 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 I, do, do. <laughs> I totally agree. There's a, we're, we're talking about, you know, keeping it simple this first time, but next time we might have music, we might have keeping score. Well, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But we thought we'd try this format first and see, see how it goes. But I like so where Staples, they have this little button. Yeah. It says, mm -hmm. like, that'd be really cool to have, like, teams and, like, yeah. Family Feud type thing will be, like, third stage Family Feud. That would be amazing. That's. I like where your head's at. Yeah, I like it. We're heading that direction for sure. <laughs> All right. So what have we got from the audience or from the panel here? Biggest potential benefit. Let's see. Um, Clifford says redefining the business model. I'm going to come back to that. That's a really good one and interesting. I'm intrigued by that. Um, Nate says reactive, uh, reactive to strategic. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, gotcha. You become less reactive, more strategic as an organization. Um, oh, Teresa actually has a new card here. Organizational buy-in and change. What's that last word? Change management. Change management. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, all right, Grace is uh, uh, unified and interoperable data and systems. Interesting. I want to come back to that too. Uh, Michelle says time savings with streamlined processes. 
Let's start with you, Clifford. What talk about this business model concept, redefining the business model? Maybe help us understand what you mean by that, or an example of that. Thanks, thanks, so, 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 I think if if one's not redefining or changing the way you do things, you know, whether that's creating new products or launching new capabilities or engaging with your customers in a different way, you're probably just optimizing what you currently have and and. In my view, certainly, that's not true. That's not true transformation, let alone digital transformation. So, how we how we leverage emerging technologies to create new new models, new services, new products, or collaborate with new, um, you know, fellow uh, value creators in the broader ecosystem um, together, to outside our organisation to to deliver more value to to existing or new customers. So, fundamentally, I think one needs to be doing something quite significantly different in terms of uh, creating new products and services or delivering to new customers or delivering in a in a different way to existing customers. But something fundamental has to change in, in, in the business model if we're going to be doing true digital transformation, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good and it, it gets back to the point that um, that was discussed earlier around having the clearly defined goals and objectives and and within that defining what you want to be as an organization when you grow up and redefining that business model where where appropriate so those are really good points um let's see uh greg you had one too i wanted to come back to um the the interoperability but you, your response is more complete unified and interoperable data and systems what tell us what you mean by that yeah, when many many organizations are looking at the uh, the digital transformation, they're placing a lot of emphasis on technology for technology's sake and uh, and making a change. They're not looking at the uh, the myriad number of uh, systems, data sources, and information that has kind of evolved over time in the organization and created silos of information and. Uh, non-interoperability across the organization. Pulling it together into a new system is the opportunity to re-engineer that entire process so that uh, data can be pulled into reporting structures that can provide a single source of the truth in the organization. And instead of celebrating the entire haystack of information systems and um, uh, data, we should really celebrate being able to find the needle in that haystack. And that's what moving to a single unified platform can do. Right. Yeah. Well, well stated. And that's, uh, sort of a, something that ties together the whole, the big picture of digital transformation and, and looking across the entire enterprise too. uh, your system and, and data and processes across the entire enterprise. Now, Nate, you talked about becoming less reactive, more strategic. Tell us about that or what kind of benefit or what, how have you seen that unfold with clients that you've worked with over the years? Well, typically, I think when, when we are engaged by a client, they're dealing with systems that are anywhere from five to 20 years in the past when they implemented them. They're dealing with uh, technology that will show them what happened in the past. Uh, dealing with numbers and figures that were created one, three, six months in the past. What we do is with a digital transformation is allow them to put a technology platform in place that gives them the vision to to see data and to, to deal with real time data. And it's not just dealing with it's not just having that at your fingertips, but it's 
knowing what to do with that data. If you can look at sales figures and react instantaneously to changes in the market. And a great example is a, a year and a half ago when we started this global pandemic, organizations had to deal with something that we've never dealt with before. So it's having that real-time data and being able to to make those decisions on a on a instantaneous basis versus looking at stuff that happened three, six months in the past really shifts the whole view of an organization. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it at least is putting the technology in place that allows you to make that shift over time. Yeah, that which leads to cultural change too, right, Teresa? I, you were- uh, Yes. Your comment was related to change management. Tell us about the cultural change. Well, so, so I think from, from me, I look at the bigger picture of what's going on because digital transformation, in my opinion, it's ongoing, right? You have new releases, you have new upgrades. What, what the biggest opportunity would be is to help your organization adapt and embrace change because change is ongoing. It's always going to happen. You know, I, I like to say, you know, the only ones that didn't listen to change are the dinosaurs and they died out, right? So you have to change. You have to evolve. You have to embrace what's coming. And I think for me, the bigger picture is to really help those behaviors to be positive, embracing, because it's going to happen again. Um, businesses change, strategy changes, market changes. What you need to do is tap into your organization's willingness and openness to change to make the organization better. Yeah. Continuous improvement. CI, CI, CI. Yeah. Well put. Very well put. Um, a couple audience comments too, or responses here. Uh, VJ on LinkedIn says ease of doing business, cost control, on-time delivery, better customer support. Those are some really good specific um, business benefits. Um, over on YouTube, comment is improve service delivery to internal staff and external stakeholders. And then uh, another comment here, I find the comment about enhancing or creating better efficiencies you don't see as digital transformation. And that's uh, from LinkedIn. And then um, and then I've been I've been called out. Over <laughs> on, I was hoping you were going to show that one. <laughs> on YouTube, I have been uh, told that I need to keep it simple, real and meaningful and use less consulting language. So I'm going to try my best. I am guilty of that. And as Kyler knows, I love buzzwords. So I tend to use buzzwords all the time. Uh, just because I'm a huge fan, right? Yeah. Well, you haven't said it depends at any point in this live stream yet. I mean, we still have, you know, 30 just, minutes or so. Just but. give it time. Just give it time, Kyler. I will. I, I, I could, it's like a drinking game. You know, it's going to happen at some point. It's just a matter of when and how often. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry. I, can you go back to the, the comment about um, more efficiencies? What, what, what did you say about that? Uh, this one here. Find the comment about enhancing or creating better efficiencies you don't see as digital transformation. Okay. I, I think that's related to my comment about um, how does one, I guess it comes down to how does one define digital transformation. Now, I was making the point in my view anyway, that uh, merely improving efficiencies and optimizing the status quo is not, in my mind anyway, digital transformation. You're not really transforming anything. So I think it was, what, it was that, Teresa. Okay. Um, I was just going to add that when you create the culture of uh, inclusivity and people are comfortable on asking questions and, you know, maybe pushing back a little bit, that's how, in my, in my experience, how other opportunities for improvement come to the table. 
because they are invested. They want things to be better. Um, they want to be part of the solution. And a lot of times when you have less voices or quieter conversations, that's when you need to worry, right? But if you can help with that change management attitude or mindset or behavior and just welcome those those issues and put them on the table and talk about them, it really enhances your digital transformation because we know it's not just the technology. It's people and process. So if those things don't align, you know, you're in trouble. So that's that's I, I thought that was a pretty a pretty good comment because it does wrap into each other and we need more voices speaking than yeah quiet people at the table so yeah yeah absolutely especially from a change and buy-in perspective as well as even just defining what the future state is going to be all that all that stuff um okay so before I get to, I have, I have some questions that toward the end, I'm going to ask that are more super simple, like either or multiple choice sorts of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on those. Um, but actually, I'm going to skip uh, to a question that I have for you. Uh, well, it's for the whole group here, but Teresa is really going to like this one. Uh-huh. Um, what do you consider the most effective change management tactic? In Ooh. Are we all going to get around at this or do you want me to go first? Uh, yeah, everyone will do the normal form. I'm just saying that I know that you particularly are going to be super excited about that question, uh, more so than maybe even the rest of us. And just a reminder to put those um, questions here in the chat. I know we have one from Brett on LinkedIn about some SaaS products and inflation. So we'll get to that um, here, but we definitely want to make it as interactive as possible um, as well. So. I'll also comment that I think, Clifford, you need to meet Sam Graham, who is the definition king, too. Um, and I think you two would be friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll reach out to you. Thanks. All right. So Clifford has linking the change to business strategy. Mm-hmm. It is the most effective change tactic. Teresa says communication. Interesting. Uh, Greg says clear guiding principles and governance. And then Michelle says, change agent team with the right people. And Nate says, executive sponsorship. So let's start with you again, Clifford, linking the change to business strategy. Why is that Why is that so important or so effective as a change strategy? Yeah, yeah, because, because I think, you know, we, we have to, Eric, you know, we operate in an industry that's primarily focused on, on, on the technology and focused on a, a software, defining a project as a software installation. And it has to be about a solution implementation and a sustainable business solution. So I'm always very uh, passionate about defining these projects from a business perspective and framing it in terms of business outputs. And I think when you get the end user, the business community, when you really get them excited and on your side and supporting the change, is when they are able to see it through a business lens and understand how it, how, how this transformation project is going to contribute to and enable their strategic objectives. And if we can't paint that picture for them, then I think we, we're in trouble and we're back to this, uh, you know, we're just bringing about technology for the sake of technology. So, yeah. Defining yeah. it in business terms, I think it's very important. Yeah, great point. I agree with you on that. Okay, we're here having a panel discussion with several consultants about digital transformation best practices. We're going to continue that conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler and I are in the middle of a conversation with a panel of consultants talking about digital transformation best practices. Teresa, why why communication? And, and first of all, maybe that's a pretty broad category. Maybe explain what it is. And, that's and why. why. Yep. I, I left it as broad because it really impacts everything from, you know, defining the strategy to delivering the message of the strategy, from having your top uh, CEO level or executive level have the right messaging and making sure the communication cadence is on point. You know, someone mess someone uh, said something about your sponsor ghosting, right? That all comes back to communication, making sure that the right people are saying the right messaging or updates at, at regular intervals and cadences and really addressing the, the fear that people have around change. So you have this innate, like, oh God, what's going to happen? Am I going to lose my job? I don't know how to do this. And it all comes from how do we address this? It's through communication. We need to talk to our teams. We need to let them know what's going on. We need to link, like Clifford said, the business objective to that level of influence. This is how it's going to impact you. This is why we're doing it. You know, this is how we're going to help you. What are your ideas? It's the communication and it's the conversation back and forth. So, so the, so the term communication was meant to be broad because I think in any change initiative, that conversation back and forth needs to happen across everything you do. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agreed. And, and actually here's a comment from an audience, uh, member here from, from Parisa. Um, she agrees with you. A lot of it comes down to how you communicate the change. And then she also included a link to an article that we have on our website about uh, better communication and training. Um, but here's another one that I want to get your, your thoughts on, uh, Teresa. I think better, I think it's supposed to say, I think better than communication is centralized communication. What are your thoughts on that? And that's a whole another question or topic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, I do, I do believe that the communications do need to be, you know, central and needs to go out, but also it needs to be a two-way street, right? So you can't just have your top level talking and moving. It has to be, yes, we're doing this. How is it going for you? Let me know of your issues, et cetera, et cetera. In my opinion, I, I just had a client that, you know, thought having one or two communication messages about, hey, we're doing this. This is the um, this is the go live date. And it, it's not enough. They, they need to understand that at the end of the day, an organization is made up of people and people communicate. If they don't communicate and people are silent, that's when you have problems, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. And Michelle, what did you have for your response again? I, it was one I wanted to come back to. I just don't remember what it was. Um, change agent team with the right people. I guess maybe just help us understand what is a change agent team and what do you mean by the right people? 
Sure. Um, so a change agent team is a group of people that are going to help uh, with the tr transformation at a lower level, right? So they're not the worker bees, but very close to them that know what the processes are and can help drive the change because the people look up to them, you know, so a little bit with my past um, answer, right? So the right people in those roles, they get trained, they help trickle down the information, but they also help trickle it up, right? So um, they are trusted by the employees. They, um, again, know the processes well, so they can really uh, drive that change along with, you know, all the communications and everything like that. But it's a very specific group of people that you select to help you drive that a little bit more um, specifically, right? So, yeah. And I know Teresa probably knows a lot more about that, but uh, but I think it's a definitely a, a, if on really big projects, a really great thing to to put in place. No, I completely agree with you. And to your point, just because you have a change agent who has the time doesn't mean they're the right change agent to have. Um, also, I've seen people that wear dual dual hats. So it's change agent, PMO, you know, janitor, whatever. You know, you're wearing too many hats, so you can't really be, um, you, you can't put the attention needed. It, it's a lot to be a change agent because it's an important role. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Well, I also, I also see the, uh, the opportunity to establish clear guiding principles with the organization, making everyone in the organization really a change agent for the way that it goes forward. But we're adhering to the same guiding principles, kind of to the, uh, to the comment, centralized communication um, and governance throughout the organization needs to be established up front so that uh, when change is agreed to, it, it can actually be accomplished by the organization all the way through. Yeah. So yeah, I think I Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to add that I think that that's really interesting because uh, when I saw the term centralized communication, the first thing I thought was, you know, it, it's it makes sense, but it also runs counter to what a lot of cool, buzz, buzzy sorts of stuff within the management world, like decentralization and flat organization, servant leadership, agile, you know, all the stuff that's sort of pushing more of a democratic approach to to transformation, and which I think there's value in that, but I think there's also value in having that top-down, clear vision, clear objectives, centralized communication. You can have the other stuff too, but you you also need that clarity at the top, which I think that gets overlooked a lot in the name of agile, name of servant yeah. leadership, and all this. And stuff. what what I'm thinking, centralized communication might have also meant is uh, consistency, right? The the same message, uh, not different people giving different messages because you know everyone's in charge of their own communication for their areas or regions but really kind of having a message that then can go out um helps keep you know that project going uh, the way that it it needs to right yeah yeah i i would like to add um unified communication because things change like <laughs> digital transformations don't follow a smooth path things happen so as long as the, that communication is unified, um, I think that's the best way to do it as well. And, and I know I have seen some things in the chat here that are pretty interesting topics of conversation. I'm sure we can't go through them all, but one of the things that I'd say is the worst thing to do is uh, email. <laughs> when you communicate via email, 
you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've got like 10,001 emails and um, it's click, 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 click. So in terms of the question on the top, the best ways to communicate, one of the ways you want to stay away from is a, is a one avenue of communication, meaning one way to do it. There needs to be multiple ways and you can't, you should not do it just by email alone. So yeah. we had some pretty creative ways to do it uh, in one of the, my clients. And if we have time later, we can talk about it. You know, like Hollywood lights and spotlights and people singing R-E-S-P-E. I'm only joking, but it was really cool. It was really cool. You got to make it fun. You got to make it engaging. You have to make it attractive to hear. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And here's a comment as a follow-up that, uh, the comment about centralized communication, the follow-up to that is when I said centralized, I mean more like the method or platform that is used. Ah, yeah, no, like no. email isn't the best, which is what you just said, Teresa. Um, use something yeah. more like Yammer, or Microsoft Teams, et cetera. So that's some good points so, there. Yeah, in, in my opinion, you need to take several avenues of that communication path because if you only use like electronic or, or you know, a posting, it's just going to, you know, you got to put it in their face make it engaging <laughs> and helpful and useful and maybe get a giggle and then they pay attention. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Here's a question. It's actually a question from the, from the audience, but I want to ask it as, as our next uh, sort of speed round here. And it's a, it's a really controversial question. Potentially this is from Sam, <laughs> but do all CEOs and let's, I'm going to rephrase this a little bit. Let's just say, do most CEOs, actually understand what a digital transformation really is and i'll and i'll get to the second part of his question in a minute but it's just simple yes no on this one so it's a pretty oh. easy response uh but i'll ask obviously i'll ask you to elaborate on this so do most ceos actually understand what a digital transformation really is and this is a really important question i think because if if they don't then there's a whole other set of problems we've got to deal with. so sort of a yes no do they do they do most of them understand so Teresa says, engaged CEOs, yes. And that typical yes. answer, you've got your disqualifier or your, uh, not disqualifier, your disclaimer, your caveat in there. Um, Nate says, yes, most of them do. Um, Michelle and Clifford say, no, most of them don't. And then what does Greg say? Uh, say yes, most. Yes, yes, most. Okay. Oh, so let's. But Steve and Teresa, you have to, you have to break the tie. <laughs> yep. Yes. I mean, I, I think as our job as consultants, though, from third stage perspective, we have that strategy, executive strategy session. So I, in my opinion, yes, because we come in and we have the discussion and we we talk about what it is and what it's going to entail. So the CEOs and COOs and the people that I've worked with, yeah, they, they are engaged and because it's our job to make sure they stay engaged. It's an investment. And there it's, we need to get, have them get the most out of the investment. So, so if do you, you don't hire us, then no, they're not. <laughs> I was going well, so to say, to understand what it, is, it really entails. <laughs> so I, so that, actually I was going to, in all seriousness, I was actually going to ask that. So in a hypothetical world where client doesn't hire us or hire someone to help them stay engaged is the natural inclination of CEOs to be, and let's just talk about executive teams in general, because it's not just the CEO. You need your CFO, COO, CIO, mm -hmm. all of them. You need the entire executive team to be engaged. Do you think in general, in most organizations, that the executive team is engaged enough to make a transformation successful? I got to hear from Clifford. You got to do it. What do you think? 
Yeah. Yeah, whether, whether the CEO is engaged enough to make it successful, um, I, th I think generally, I, th I think they certainly try, and the intent, so is, the intent is certainly there, because, you know, obviously these are massive enterprise-wide projects. They consume lots of resources, lots of time, lots of effort, so there's a high profile and visibility. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess it links back to the earlier question, do, do, do they understand what it is? And I don't think organizations and executives take enough time to break it down and really understand what it means for their organization. Because let's face it, there's no real uniform or industry standard definition for digital transformation. And I think we also get too, too caught up on the digital side of it and too little on the transformation. We forget that this is, as to the points that Michelle and Therese and others were making, this is a major transformation organization that touches people, process, technology, ways of working, roles, responsibilities, um, everything in the organization. So I think in a nutshell, um, Kyla, I don't know that that executives and steering committees take enough time to define for their organization what digital transformation means and what the expected outputs are. Yeah, and I think that's what Sam was getting at, and that's why I tried to you know, make that connection is that transformation or ERP systems by definition need to be unique to that business business's strategy and overall needs. And I, I always love how um, you and Sam, you really dig into what is a transformation? What does it mean for your specific company? And unless you're able to define that as a leadership team, then there's no way to be successful unless we have that alignment. So Sam talks a lot about that in our guest blogs. And, and that's why I wanted to hear from, from your opinion, because I think you follow kind of the same approach. Yeah. And let me make one last comment on that, Carla, and it's a whole different topic, so we won't go down that rabbit hole. I do think too often the systems integrators set the narrative about what the project is or what it is not, and there's not enough pushback from the client executive side. So, But I know we've had, we've had lots of conversations on this topic, and I won't take us off in that direction, but I, I did want to make that point. Yeah, and um, we do have that ground control episode, and I'm sure Parisa will help us um, pop that in there. She also just popped in our um, new white paper on Africa as well. Um, so definitely check that out uh, when it comes for more on the SI and my favorite buzzword that Clifford taught me, professional skepticism, which I say in every conversation at least 10 times a day. <laughs> All right. And, and uh, just some audience responses to this question, which seems to be generating a lot of responses from LinkedIn. I will channel Eric here and say it depends. LOL. Uh, thank you. I knew that was going to come up. It's, now I don't have to say it. Kyler, someone said it for me. Um, and then depends on the market, I guess, from, from uh, Juiced on LinkedIn. Thanks for being here again today. And then there was one other comment I wanted to. Um, here's a really interesting comment. Uh, from LinkedIn, not always in terms of executive sponsorship, not always know most executive leadership I've read about is in their nature to delegate off things to their direct reports and rely on them to deploy out the communications tasks, et cetera. Um, I need to hide the comment to get to the rest of it here. Um, at that point, the silo is just reinforced and you lose drivers and more. Um, here, VJ has some very strong, concise language here that he uses to describe the situation. No, they delegate and dream that the system will go live. <laughs> very, uh, very strong language there. And uh, I, I do agree, though, actually, there are a lot of executives that do that do think that though, that way they just want to push it off. They want to delegate and assume that the team's going to take care of it. I want to get to you, though, Michelle, because you said you said no, right? You said no, most executives are not engaged. Is that correct? 
Well, I think that they might not um, realize the full spectrum of a digital. So I think it's already been talked about that it's not just having a new system, but it's implementing new processes. It's teaching, you know, training, uh, getting engagement, like there's so much more. Uh, and, you know, to what you said earlier, Eric, you know, a lot of the times change management gets cut. There's no time there's and that's like one of the most important things to really make it happen. Right. I mean, that the right software is important. Putting the right processes for your business is important. But if people aren't going to accept, you know, and, and do what you're trying to implement, it's not going to work if people go back to Excel and ignore your system. Right. So, um, so I, I, I maybe, you know, obviously some do, but I think that in, in most cases, I don't really get that whole holistic. And I think that's what we do in the executive strategy session. Right. We ask the questions that get them thinking about, right. oh, have you thought about that? Have, you know, kind of get their their thought process going as to what it really does entail. Yeah. Yeah, well, well said. I agree with that. Um, so, and actually, I'm just going to share one last comment um, with the audience, and then I'll move on to the next uh, sort of the speed round questions to, to close up. So as an integrator, and this is from uh, Juiced on LinkedIn, as an integrator, we see that we need the management to take their role and responsibility. So that's interesting to hear it from a system integrator mm -hmm. saying, hey, we can't do this all for you. You need to own this uh, executive team. So well, uh, thanks for the feedback there. I, and again, I think that goes back to the executive strategy sessions and the communications. A lot of times people don't take the take that extra step to defining what your role is, what your responsibility is, not just as you know part of the executive team, but as a change agent, as, as part of that you know stakeholder team. What is what does this mean? What am I supposed to do? I've heard that a lot of times over and over. And if you don't take the time to define that and have the conversation, of course, they're not going to gravitate towards what they need to do. They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. It's it's about that whole, you know, unknown fear factor, et cetera. So that's what we do. We help people understand. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So in the last five minutes here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a couple of speed round questions. I, I may not ask. I may, I may not ask for elaboration here. Um, but first, for the first one I'll cover is, and this actually alludes to a comment that was made earlier, which we didn't get to, but it's uh, the whole concept of best of breed systems versus single ERP. If you had to pick one that you think is the best answer for companies in general, which is always dangerous to do, right, to generalize, but let's just generalize for fun. Um, what do you think is better, single ERP system or best of breed? You want to generalize, Eric? I, 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 do I don't generalize. even know. I don't even know you right now. But notice, I'm not the one generalizing. Right, I'm, I'm exactly. asking others to do it. I can't do it. I want other, I want other people to do it. So Clifford says single ERP. Oh, Teresa with the classic consulting response of it depends. That's No, that's Eric's response. What See, would Eric do? That's my everyone, Everyone's doing my dirty work for me. They're saying it depends. They, they're, they're I, 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 I've got depends as well. <laughs> but, that's but, but when when possible single erp single, yes. single erp nate you said single erp as well and then what did you have michelle oh where did it go hold on sorry i missed it <laughs> Muted. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> hi toby <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Two. also so, single single erp okay yeah. So most responses were, were single ERP. Um, is that what you said too, Clifford? I already forgot what you said. Yeah, he did. I did, yes. Okay. 
All right, we're going to leave it at that. I won't ask you to elaborate on that. I'd love to hear the audience feedback, though. Uh, single mm -hmm. ARP, your best of breed. Um, how about this? Um, cloud versus on-premise systems. Depends. Hashtag it depends. Ooh, you should have that trending. That would I be try. amazing. I really do try. It's my, you know, it's my overall goal is to hashtag. <laughs> my prettier. <laughs> Love the cloud. Not surprisingly, I think everyone so far has said cloud. We're waiting for Clifford. Yep, cloud. Prop again. With yeah. the lightning. <laughs> with a little bit of lightning. <laughs> right, with, with lightning. Right. There is some risk, right? So that, that's actually a good uh, graphic here. A good yeah. Still risk. And then Greg saying cloud with his balloon. Cloud. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And I suppose that's not a super controversial question. Um, I was hoping that at least one person would say, um, you know, on-prem mainframe is 400 based, but we, we weren't getting, <laughs> we're getting any takers on that. Um, okay. One last question. Um, how actually I, let's do this verbally. I, I don't want to make you write this out, but um, why consider, why should companies consider cloud? I mean, what's the main reason that an organization should go with the cloud? Maybe I'll start with you, uh, Greg. Uh, Multi-tenancy, especially in the new cloud systems, makes it so that you have automatic up upgrades, updates, the, uh, you know, the next five years that uh, your organization is running on, on a cloud system is going to be, you know, just continuous rather than uh, stop and start like it has been in the past. Very important. Yeah. Yep, that's a good point. How about you, Clifford? Why, why cloud? Yes, yeah, so, so I think specifically, uh, Eric, in, in the back office space, or what's typically called systems of record, you know, that, that's pretty standard. It's commodity business processes. There's no differentiation there. It doesn't help you win as an organization. You just it's, it's your foundation. And you want to be able, you want that to hum. You want to be able to divert your, your funds, your energy, your leadership focus and attention into the areas of differentiation. Um, so you don't want to be preoccupied with sorting out standard ERP. You know, that stuff should always be in the plan. It should just work. Free up resources to focus on innovation, et cetera. So that, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. That was a really interesting and entertaining and at times funny uh, conversation. So really appreciate everyone's involvement in the discussion as well as the audience questions that we got on that. That was very uh, interesting as well. So really appreciate that. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the takeaways from that conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, 
um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we just had the panel discussion, Kyler, and uh, a lot of good content, a lot of topics we covered, a lot of interesting perspectives and diverse opinions here. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, well, I would start by saying for any of our audio platform listeners, just to add some context, they held up pieces of paper that said their answer, and that's what Eric was reading off. Um, so just to give you a little, you know, a lens yeah, and visualization, but I thought that you guys were joking before we went live that you were actually going to hold up pieces of paper <laughs> and say your answers. So I thought that was, you know, a funny thing um, and always appre appreciated the ones that, you know, could write really uh, beautifully like Michelle. But, um, you know, from from those questions, I think, you know, one of the the pieces that I really walked away with was just the overall definition of transformation and understanding that from an executive level and then communicating it right through the change management strategies and communication plan that our listeners and Teresa kind of laid out for us. Um, and transformation, I feel like a lot of times is, is so fluid, right? It really needs to match what are you trying to transform in your overall digital portfolio, within your business, just in general, your processes, all those types of things. And so I feel like everyone answered the question in a, in a similar way, but they each were focused on kind of a, a different area, whether it was executive alignment, whether it was change agents. So it was interesting to see which one of those they really identified as the most important piece to a digital transformation. It was, and it was. It was also interesting to see uh, Teresa, who on the who's on the panel. She actually, before we even started the conversation, she already had a pre-filled out sheet of paper that said change management because she knew her answer for several of the responses. Presumably, it was going to be change management. Uh, so she she got sort of a head start uh, on on the whole process. And uh, but even even in the context of, of people like uh, Teresa that come at things from a change management first or a people mm -hmm. first mentality, she had a pretty diverse. Um, set of thoughts. And it was also interesting to see the commonalities too, because there yeah. were certain threads or patterns you saw. And these are all, by the way, you know, if you were listening um, and you didn't see what I was doing is I was re I was, I was reading a question, but they didn't know what the questions were ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So they were sort of put on the spot and they had to write their question down or their, their answer down um, as I was sort of talking and waiting for them to finish. Um, sort of like a game show, I guess, in that, in that way. Um, so, it, so they didn't know what each other were going to say. They didn't know what the mm -hmm. questions were ahead of time. And that was by design. That was intentional just to get, you know, as many diverse opinions as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it was also really interesting when they were addressing, like, does a CEO know what a digital mm -hmm. transformation is, which was one of our audience questions as well. And I, again, I, some said no, and some said yes. Um, I guess I was surprised by some of our more senior consultants that have been former CIOs, those types of things, said no. 
right. then the the other ones, um, you know, that that might not be in that senior tier said yes. And and I again, I think it goes back to how do you define that? But also what level of an organizational culture do you have? You know, is it super hierarch, high, hierarchical? Hierarchical. There you go. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right. Um, is it, you know, super structured in that way and you have less visibility or a transparent feedback loop to your executives? Or is it more of a startup type of atmosphere where, you know, the CEO is is very much involved in the day to day? So I think it really depends on the organization. I can't believe I just said it. It depends, but, you know, and sorry for opening that door in that conversation, everybody. <laughs> That's right. That door was already opened uh, at least a couple times during that discussion. Yeah. The consulting, it depends answer. Uh, but it is true. And that's why, that's what made that, that format so fun, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. that I, I tend to think in gray, not black and white. And so, mm-hmm. and I, and I know a lot of other consultants do too. Um, and you kind of have to, you know, to be successful in these oh, sorts sure. of projects. But so it's, that's why it's so interesting to force people into an either or black or white sort of an answer. Cause you kind of go with your gut. It's, you're not hundred percent comfortable with the answer, but if you had to pick one, that's what you're going to pick. I, I thought that was interesting. And that executive, um, buy-in and support question was i thought the most interesting one too because it was such a such a diverse response you know mm-hmm. some saying that yeah they, they are engaged they do buy-in or they 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 are supportive in general um but in other cases i'm saying no they're they're really not so uh i thought i thought that was interesting as well yeah i also liked um the system integrator um representative that was kind of trolling clifford there for a minute about how Hey, you know, you need to be in charge of your your project too, um, and then your management really has to be present and engaged. Um, and I thought that you know was well said on both sides of the business. Really, does need to own their project while working in in partnership with the system integrator. But the system integrator itself, you kind of heard it from the horse's mouth, if you will, that they're they want that management engagement. So that was kind of an interesting interaction. Yeah, yeah, it was very very interesting for sure. The one thing I kind of want to play devil's advocate about, and I almost did um, in that live stream, um, was the the single ERP versus best of breed. And I think that is one thing not being as technical as, you know, my peers in that space are our consultants, which is their job, right? I would choose best of breed because why wouldn't you just get the best of every system and just integrate it? But I'm probably the client that they hate working with the most because I think that is just like snap your fingers simple in doing that. Um, So would you pick single ERP or best of breed? Well, again, that's, you know, the beauty of the beauty of hosting that discussion is I didn't have to answer the question. Yeah. Um, And that of all the questions, that's probably the one that I would have had the hardest time answering, honestly, Mm -hmm. Um, because that is such a, it depends sort of response. And I, you know, I think, I think where a lot of them are going, the ones that did say single ERP, and even our clients that say this too, mm-hmm. I think it's sort of like in a perfect world, if I could find a single system that does everything I needed to do, then yes, I'd rather have a single ERP system. And I think that's probably a fair statement, I, and I would agree with that. The problem is it's not a perfect world, and the technology is not perfect, and you're going to find gaps in whatever ERP system you might choose. So if you do choose a single enterprise-wide technology like that, the question then is, do you just settle for the lesser capabilities in the name of having a single system? Or do you, is it important enough that you go find a best of breed solution? 
and I don't think there's a good answer, a good common answer for that. It, you know, if you're a more vanilla organization and you could find that s- system that does it all, then great, mm-hmm. go go at it. But if you're a larger, more complex organization, the odds of you finding that system are pretty slim to none. Um, so anyway, that's and I think the other thing too, from a change management perspective, a single system is going to put more pressure on the organization to change mm-hmm. more, which maybe that's not a bad thing, but most organizations aren't ready to invest enough in change management as it is, especially in cases when you're talking about a single ERP system. And then you add to the fact you're talking in many cases about cloud or software as a service types of solutions. They're even less flexible. They put more pressure on you to change. So you're just, in my opinion, no matter what you choose, you're just shifting one risk for another. Um, And it's a matter of weighing those risks and cost benefits to figure out what you're most comfortable with as a team. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've already had multiple requests for buzzards next time in the Jeopardy round. So that will be something. For buzzwords? Is that what you said? No, for buzzers, like bzz, oh buzzers, like I'm buzzing, sorry, like Jeff Jeopardy type of you know yeah, like Jeopardy yeah. when you see people like pushing their button over and over again. Um, but I've already had a few requests for next time, so it was definitely well received both internally and externally. And thank you to the audience for asking such great questions. Um, our consultants and our team here really does enjoy answering your questions directly, especially when you're you're pushing back on them and, and challenging them. That's where we really find some great dialogue. Um, so we learn a lot from our audience members as well. Yeah. And it's like I said, even when I think I have the answer, or I've got a pretty solid opinion. It always helps to hear a mm-hmm. counter point to that to just, you know, if anything, it maybe it helps validate your opinion or maybe it helps you, it helps you rethink your opinion as well. So I, I agree. I think yeah, getting that many, it's not that often you get that many consultants in the room, the same room answering the same questions. It's pretty, pretty unique. Even for us who work with each other all the time, we're not mm-hmm. usually talking about those broad topics that in that format. So uh, really appreciate that. So uh, good. So hopefully we'll do that again soon. And uh, maybe that's, that's another, that'd be kind of a fun uh, summertime yeah. sort of uh, um, recurring theme that we can have on this podcast as we enter the summer months for at least for half of the world, for the uh, Northern hemisphere, at least. But um, and then for those of you in the Southern hemisphere, you can settle into winter listening to our, mm-hmm. our game shows. So, uh, win-win. Yeah. Um, so we're going to uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we'll kick off our third segment, which is, uh, Kyler, you did a live stream recently that covers human behavior and digital transformation focused on employee burnout. So I'll be curious to hear more mm-hmm. on that. Uh, first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we are going to shift gears somewhat here uh, in our third segment, although we did talk about uh, human components of change throughout this episode. We're going to dive deep into that that one topic here um, with a conversation, Kyler, that you recently had with Bree Peterson, mm-hmm. who's a licensed therapist. So we're going to really get into the psyche and the mindset mm-hmm. of employees and employee burnout and how it relates to human behavior and digital transformation. So this should be a pretty interesting uh, topic. And I love having guests like this on the show that aren't necessarily just in our world of digital transformation and technology and all that sort of thing. They're looking at it more from a, a very much a people first perspective. So it's always interesting to get their their feedback on the organizational side of things. So let's go ahead and play the clip with you, Kyler, interviewing uh, Bree. Without further ado, I'm excited um, to introduce our special guest here. So Bree Peterson is a a licensed therapist that specializes in human behavior. So today we're going to kind of dig into uh, what that looks like, especially in a professional or technology setting. So thanks so much for joining me today, Bree. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited. So for all of our audience members or our podcast listeners after the fact here, can you kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Bree. I am a clinical licensed professional counselor. Um, I work partic- I work in a hospital setting. I work in something called an intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization program. Um, during that program, we get all sorts of clients from different demographics. Most of them are professionals who have reached a place of burnout either in their careers or in just their personal lives that are coming to us looking to get some skills to get themselves back on track and back into a healthy balance. Um, One of the things that we've noticed, especially in the last couple of years in a pandemic, is that people who traditionally had never needed any sort of mental health service um, Mm -hmm. are starting to experience stressors in life that just weren't there before. And a lot of times we can learn that we are short of the skills to manage these behaviors that are interfering with our productivity and our overall wellness. So the group that we teach is primarily a skills group. And then um, I also do private practice on the side. Excellent. Well, we have lots to learn from you today, certainly, mm-hmm. as, as I could assume in our current climate, post-COVID-19 pandemic, um, the world of professional mental health services has probably changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Could you share some of kind of the the triggers that you've seen for that sort of either mental health challenges that you've seen in a professional setting or maybe some triggers for employee burnout? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, there's going to be a ton of different things to cover. So I'll do my best to try to touch on which ones I can. But, you know, a big part of what we see is poor work-life home balance um, Mm -hmm. tends to be one of the number one things that leads to burnout. You know, as humans, our our whole self is something that we want to be mindful of. And there's this this thing that we talk about in behavioral therapies called the six dimensions of wellness. And those areas are going to be our emotional, our physical selves, our mental selves, our relational and social selves, our spiritual selves, and our occupational selves. And what usually tends to happen is if we have 
too much attention in one of those areas of life. So for instance, occupational, um, and we are off balance in the other areas of our lives, it can lead to a lot of distress um, and a lot of concern. And so a lot of times what we would see with our patients is that, um, especially during the pandemic, uh, businesses are going under, we're adding financial stressors that weren't usually present, we're adding uh, shortness of staff, having to overcompensate for people who are off on medical leave or just not able to come into the offices. We're juggling a lot more external stressors in our work environments than we had been used to. So Primarily, we would see burnout in a lot of our professions that were helping professions like doctors, police officers, firefighters. But in the last couple of years, we've been seeing a major increase, particularly with teachers, but also in a lot of tech and um, business mentalities because of our, our demographics because of the changes of the socioeconomic concerns that have been coming up. And so um, seeing a lack of balance tends to be a really big problem for people. Um, and then there's just also conflicts that arise when there's um, difficulties societally. You know, we're going through a societal trauma that is impacting every area of our work-life balance. And um, that would, would be what I would say is probably one of our number one sort of concerns that we're seeing with people coming in is that everything feels very sort of like in your face, I guess. Yeah. And already stressful jobs are now having a whole nother layer of stress. Absolutely. Well, I only have about a thousand questions from the things you've just said, but Perfect. <laughs> that's, I mean, I think that's such a great overview. And just from a top line perspective, these six dimensions of wellness, what happens in a professional setting when one of those things might be in, in real uh, area of trauma or really suffering for a professional? What are some things that you can see kind of in workplace behaviors that might come out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of times what we would be, I mean, it would be great if we could separate our work life from our personal lives, right? That'd be excellent. In fact, Apple TV just put a show out about that. I think it's called like Split or something like that. But the, the principle of it is that these people show up in this elevator and when they walk into their work life, they have no memory of their personal life. And when they leave oh, wow. work, they have no memory of their work life. And it's this instant, it's interesting like juxtaposition about like whether or not that is ideal. And what we know is that in theory, that sounds great, but it's just not practical and it's not reasonable to be able to totally separate our personal lives from our work lives. And so a lot of times when we are looking at coworkers, you know, employees who are starting to struggle with their mental health, there are definitely some warning signs. Um, one of the things we might start to notice is a difficulty of concentration, especially if you have a person who is usually quite productive and there's a change of a behavior with their abilities to accomplish their tasks or focus in meetings, that might be a sort of warning sign. Um, changes in mood or behavior might be another thing, um, especially if it's a difference, an extreme difference. If somebody is, you know, 
maybe a little bit more docile and, you know, calm and you start seeing that they're shorter and more irritating, there could be something off balance, right? Now, obviously in the workplace, we struggle with wanting to make sure that we're remaining ethical and not asking questions that are too personal, but um, we could definitely support coworkers who are struggling with their caseloads, their workloads, whatever that might be, would be one of the things we might want to look at. Um, you know, the way that we interact and engage with each other is sort of this baseline that gets set. And when we're deviating from a baseline for normal behaviors, I think it's safe to assume that there's probably something going on and right. it could be something in one of those other dimensions. Interesting. So you kind of touched on it a little bit. And from a leadership perspective, even middle management, a manager, those types of things, if you do manage um, employees within the workforce and you see some of these signs, what are some things that you can do to help address them in mm -hmm. you know, a, a sensitive but appropriate way? Yeah, I think checking in is a big piece of that. You know, we always, we always want to keep professional boundaries up, especially in management. And so it's not really fair or safe to make any assumptions about maybe what's going on in a person's personal life. But I think the more sort of tangible evidence we have of these changes, like things like, hey, I noticed that you've been having a hard time meeting your deadlines. Is there something going on? Is there something I can help you with? I think approaching it from an angle of help sort of opens a door that allows your, you know, employee to feel comfortable perhaps expressing, yes, I'm feeling overwhelmed or, you know, maybe it's a punctuality thing. Hey, I've noticed that you've been showing up to work a lot a lot lately, like lately. And that's not a typical behavior for you. Is everything going, is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to help? I think creating an environment that is welcome and, and open and focused around a language that is about helping versus reprimanding first is usually a better, better step because that opens up, um, you know, a space for your employees to be able to share if things are happening that they do need help. They might say, yeah, I'm having a hard time concentrating and focusing, or I've been really down lately, or there's something going on with my um, kids, my kids and getting them to school. And we can kind of see if there's a bigger, problem happening. You know, it's it's a tough spot because we need our employees to be able to do their jobs and to do their mm -hmm. jobs well. There are certain requirements. I don't think it's necessarily like about making accommodations, but checking in and caring about the well-being of your employees can go a really long way as a manager. Certainly. Um, and we talk about that a lot in digital transformation and our change practitioners. That's a, a big thing that they bring to the table is, is teaching executives and leaders, specifically with technology, how to create that open feedback loop, because technology can often stem yeah. a lot of fear. Um, and what that means. And before I ask my next question, I just want to take a quick break to um, just just mention where we're, our guests are joining us from today. So we do have an international audience. Um, so we have some from Louisville, Kentucky here and Mesa, Arizona, Teresa Richardson, who's one of our, our, um, change directors here at third stage. So she should have some great questions to ask. Um, we've got some from Denver and Parker, Colorado. So, and then, um, some internationally as well. So welcome everyone for joining us. I definitely highly encourage you to drop a question or some feedback, engage in the conversation in the chat while we have Bree to teach us, you know, how to be more human in technology, because that's not something <laughs> we're typically great at. Um, so with that, 
Bree, when you do talk about kind of the changes in specifically the technology industry mm-hmm. and how employees are kind of suffering more in that area or, or being challenged in different ways that you didn't see kind of pre-pandemic, can you mm-hmm. dig into what some of those areas are and maybe some root causes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the areas, I guess the best way that I can sort of like summarize it is I think having to do with um, insecurity, insecurity about jobs, insecurity about the functioning, um, insecurity about the finances going into businesses. I've had um, clients that have come in who were in the middle of a startup and right when the pandemic hit. And as you know, when you are launching startups, there is a whole lot that is going into that already. But on top of that, now we're adding funding sources being cut. We're adding um, you know, uh, having to cut staff because of that funding, mm-hmm. having to juggle a whole lot more. And so what it just seems like with this pandemic, especially with my clients who have been in tech industries, is that it's already difficult enough to do something and, um, you know, do something like a startup. But then when we're adding now you have to add all these other facets to your job that originally somebody else was going to do. It adds a whole lot of juggling and a lot of time that goes into this, this project, this like baby that you've been putting out. And so, you know, just like when there's any sort of economic crisis, those startups have really, my clients who've been in startup industries have really suffered. Um, And then as a result of that, some of the people that are working with them are suffering because now we're all spread just so thin. Um, And so I think that the financial climate changing has a huge impact on the tech industries. And plus, I mean, we are in a time where tech industries are involved like in medical fields and trying to keep up with the the things that are changing and requirements. My, my brother actually works in medical sales and, you know, I would always joke with him about how easy his job was, but then the pandemic hit. And the next thing, you know, my brother who is typically dealing with, you know, these sales and it's pretty easy. He's now dealing with shortages. He's now dealing with these very unhappy clients. He's dealing with people who are in high need. And so the need changes so much with our society. And I think that has this trickle down effect into the individuals that are are participating in this. And so I feel like it's just this increase of pressure to get everything done and to then juggle that going back to the balance with everything else that's happening in their real lives adds not that work isn't a real life, but you know, their home lives um, adds that extra pressure and that balance to it as well. And I think that that, they think also just the constant changing and the lack of security tends to lead to some very problematic behaviors. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think um, that security piece you you hit on, you know, is, is obviously an essential need for just humans in general. Um, and that I assume can manifest into a bunch of different things. You know, you mentioned your brother that's in the healthcare industry, which has gone through a huge force transformation, mm-hmm. not only digitally, but dealing with, um, you mm-hmm. know, a, a completely different culture when it comes to how they work, what that looks like. So that's a huge transition. Um, I know myself when I can't focus, it's because something has threatened my security, which for me mm-hmm. in the pandemic is childcare. That's really right. difficult for me. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, a childcare crisis. So that can manifest, I assume, in a lot of different forms for a lot of different Absolutely. people. Um, and I, I love your idea of, of having that awareness or specifically in a leadership position to just 
check in and have that rhetoric and that talk track of health. Um, I'm curious, when it comes to technology cultures, in, mm-hmm. we've been known for um, historically not having the most healthy culture a lot mm-hmm. of times in technology industries, just because a lot of times the perception is hard skills right? A technical person by definition means that they are an engineer, um, someone that a software engineer, a coder, those types of of more hard positions. So I wondered if, if you could kind of give us a lens into company culture and how to humanize Mm -hmm. that in a space that has been historically Mm -hmm. not great at being able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting because there are these two facets of our brains. We've got our emotional part of our brain and our logical part of our brain. And in one of the therapies that we teach, it's something called DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapies. Um, Part of the goal for that mindfulness is using something called our wise mind that takes into account our emotional mind and our logical mind. If we swing too far into the logical mind, we might become cold and rigid, very black and white in our thinking, which can lead to a lot of very stubborn behaviors, a lot of digging heels in, um, a lot of power dynamics. When we lean too far into that emotional mind or that emotional self, we might be impulsive and reactive. And neither one of those creates a cultural environment that feels safe for people. Mm -hmm. Now, it's funny because us empaths, the emotional type, we always talk about how we don't do well with technology. Like we, cause I don't understand it. I don't understand a computer and code. Talk to you about your feelings. I can, I can understand that. I can connect with you, but there is this sort of like biological difference of personality that we do want to take into account, especially in a tech industry. Emotions, uh, recognizing emotions, talking about emotions, it probably won't come naturally in this environment. But that doesn't mean that people are not having an emotional experience. That doesn't mean that they're not experiencing fear or distress or self-doubt or self-loathing, you know, because humans, we're not robots and we're not machines. And so it kind of sells our, uh, cuts us like short when we only look at people through that lens. And so I think trying to bring a balance into a work culture can be helpful there. What Even if it's something like mixers or like a little bit of time before meetings to humanize the approach. I mean, fun is a little bit easier to deal with than anger, right? And yeah. so even opening up a door to allow some positive emotional experiences into the workday, then following that up with checking in and seeing, again, if somebody's behaviors are sort of a little bit off, being able to recognize that, you know, there is, you know, something else that can be done. Like it's somebody, something else can be done. We can check in on them. We can still ask them, but it definitely does become this question of, am I willing to be countercultural, which is ultimately what we're requesting because the tech industry for so long has been very sort of techie. You know, and so am I willing to recognize these and and adapt to and change some of that environment and that culture? Absolutely. And I love your idea that like little things, a lot of times I think we spend way too much time as leaders or executives in thinking like, well, can we do like a big grand thing? And all of those 
actions are important, right, for employees to feel appreciated and valued. But sometimes it's just snacks in the break room and little things like that around mm-hmm. that kind of start that trickle down effect of, oh, they're considering that I might be hungry, you know, or yeah. free coffee and things like that. And I, I think that's where a lot of the, the tech industry needs to start. In order to make that transformation when we talk about company culture because it it can't happen overnight and teresa richardson who is one of our change practitioners talks about kind of the timeline behind that transformation and just what that looks like as far as committing to it but also understanding mm-hmm. it's very much a journey right with absolutely and that's where we really do want to be able to set realistic goals for this change, that's right? Great. You know, I mean, it's not realistic to sit down and have a circle with a talking stick in a tech environment where we really kind of just like open that door. That's not appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, checking in, like I like that you had mentioned needing a physical need like food. They might be thinking about me. That is starting to humanize and it's starting to recognize and even just coworkers following up on little things that they might know about their employees. Like, hey, how'd that baseball game for your kid go? Just a little bit of something, even if it's very small, can actually go a lot a long way in morale for a person because a person does want to feel seen and valued and know that they contribute to the team that they're a part of beyond just their skills, that they are liked, that they are enjoyed because we do have this social component and the social need to ourselves where we do need to feel respected and appreciated to feel like we can fully thrive. And so I think whether that if that's a creative person, maybe allowing the creative person to have a different sort of task that does reach some of that creative brain, you know, mm-hmm. paying attention to the gifts and the skills that you have beyond the job description in your departments is a helpful tool that you could look oh, at. Oh, absolutely. Too. Great, great point. And, you know, talking through a lot of that, it makes me think, how would you recommend creating that really inclusive and social culture that you mentioned, and now a remote or hybrid work environment. We have a lot of people that are now, you know, working from home that aren't going back into the office that can be really siloing, anxious, um, those types of things that um, employees or leadership is now wondering, well, how do we create a remote a remote working culture and make sure that we are continuing to communicate that value to our employees so that they don't go somewhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I think that recognition is a huge piece of that. I think that if we can recognize positive things that employees are doing, I think a lot of times in the burnout culture, and when I say burnout culture, I mean the whole the whole culture, right? Like we're all burnt out. We're all collectively tired. Industries are facing a lot of stressors and we what it's really easy to say let's just put my head down and get through the day right i think part of what we tend to do is we only reach out to our employees when they're doing something wrong you know or they've done something that is excellent mm-hmm. and so for the most part i think employees can really fall between the cracks like if i'm doing my job and i'm doing my job well i might feel like i'm never even acknowledged or recognized and so mm-hmm. i think sending a quick email like hey i saw that report you did it looked really good send it like just an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of something that's happening or doing a quick FaceTime meeting a couple of times a month where we just check in and say, hey, how are you doing on your projects? Is there anything you need help or support with? I think being able to offer support, even if you as the direct supervisor cannot give that support 
because of other circumstances, is there somebody else that can meet the need that I can mm -hmm. delegate and I can connect? If somebody is struggling with a training point, can I plug them in with somebody who is doing really well in that area? And mm -hmm. I think personalizing the individual is a really, mm -hmm. really gigantic first step that um, employers can start to do when looking at their employees is recognizing those strengths and encouraging. A little bit of encouragement can go a very long way in building morale. Absolutely. And I, I love also how you said um, the personalization. And it makes me think uh, my husband, who actually works at Third Stage with me, um, he leads a lot of teams here and he always knows about like some so-and-so's daughter is going to dance class and blah, blah, blah. And we've always had a remote culture. And I'm like, how do you do that? How do you know all of these things? And he's like, well, I always leave space with my one-on-ones when we start to actually have like a, a true human conversation. I've always admired his ability to do that and kind of stop from the go, go, go and recognize that each person has their own unique needs that they need to talk to and create that trust within that leadership connection. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And I love that notion of building the time in and really looking yeah. at our schedule and saying, where can I create room for this? We're here chatting with Bree Peterson, who's a licensed therapist, and we're talking about employee burnout and human behavior and digital transformation. We're gonna continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. Aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on social media and all the podcast audio platforms. Um, we're gonna jump right into the conversation between Kyler and Bree Peterson, who's a licensed therapist. Parisa asked us, what guidance would you have for an employee who is feeling overwhelmed and needs a change? Should they broach the subject in a professional manner or how should they do that, I should say? Yeah. That's a great question. And actually in the the group that I teach, I do an entire hour long lecture on this very question. We talk about it as our communication, our assertive communication skills. And sometimes what can make it very difficult for us to use our assertive communication skills is when there's a perceived power dynamic, talking to a boss, asking for help, especially when going back to the security, it feels like my livelihood is dependent upon this job right? So a lot of times what we might end up doing is just keep, we keep saying yes, and we keep on taking on more. And then that builds, it adds to the plate before long, we're overwhelmed and we're totally ready to shut down. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to open up a conversation that talks about the benefits for receiving the accommodation for the company is a great way to 
to word word that. Um, an assertiveness script is something we call the dear man. And so the describing, let's say I'm feeling overwhelmed and I have to talk to my boss. It might be something like, hey, I have a lot of projects that I'm juggling right now and I'm having a hard time keeping up with everything. We want to stick to what we're talking about. We don't want to pull in all the things that are happening in our personal lives yet. We don't want to overshare or make excuses. We really just want to stick to the point. What's happening is I'm having a hard time maintaining this workload, right? That helps us hone the conversation in and we're setting ourselves up for a productive and assertive conversation. The expression would be expressing the emotion that's involved with it. So in the same context, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. And I know when I'm overwhelmed, I don't produce as good of work. You know, being able to speak to how we're feeling is a difficult bridge to gap when we're not used to that in a work environment. But again, having healthy relationships with our bosses, supervisors, being able to have open and transparent conversations is huge there. Um, and then the A is asserting myself. So that's asking for what I need. I need more time on this project. I need some help. I need some coaching. I need some guidance. And the the, re, the next thing we want to look for is the R, which is reward. I believe if I get that, I will be productive. I will be efficient. I will do this project well. I'll get it in on time with a little bit of help, right? Because what we want to be setting up when we're talking to or asserting a need or a boundary, especially to a supervisor, is that there is a reward for them. And that will be, I can prevent myself from burning out. Because the fact of the matter is, if we reach max burnout, that's when a medical leave of absence is necessary, right? Yeah. If I've reached max burnout, if I'm getting to that place where I know I'm going to, you know, pop the top and just lose it, yeah. then I'm preventing that by asking for the help now. And so being aware of ourselves, especially if we've tried self-care, leaving work at home, all of these other things to try to prevent ourselves from reaching that place of being overwhelmed. The other side of that is setting up goals that are specific and smart for ourselves. So if we're overwhelmed by a project, Sometimes we can really get in our heads when we're looking at that project as a whole instead of the next step. And so if we're struggling on an interpersonal level with being overwhelmed and we're maybe not feeling all the way comfortable yet asking for help or reaching out to a supervisor, can I simplify? Can I bring that down? Can I take it a step at a time, do some breathing in between so that I'm not becoming so overwhelmed and dysregulated at work? Wow. I mean, that... I'm like, you know, furiously taking notes here for myself. Okay. But no, so that sounds like, especially kind of those talk tracks or those templates of asking for what you need, that sounds like it could be packaged into like a really um, valuable training or resource. So how would you recommend uh, leaders being HR leaders or change um, management leaders to package that without seeming um, kind of invasive. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. this is what you should say. This is what you should do. Mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, like, this is a resource for you in order to help have a very vulnerable conversation um, mm -hmm. that I brave to have. And that makes you Absolutely. a good advice. Um, So how would you recommend leadership positioning that as mm -hmm. a resource? 
dollars or other, you know, employee benefit, mental health resources. Absolutely. I think it's a trickle down. And I think it starts actually with training your managers and your supervisors. I think having conversations like this one that we're having, you know, reaching out to some of your like local supports, whether it's individual therapists, there's also people who actually do trainings like this for corporations that can meet with this upper management, do, you know, so we can learn about trauma and being a trauma-informed work environment. So we can learn about cultures and cultural impacts and implications. I think training your managers and trainers is where it starts because if we are if we have management that is approachable, it's more likely that our employees are going to feel comfortable then using these skills. And I think that having great employee assistant programs, having benefits for mental health counseling, um, those sorts of things are also incredibly important in corporations because if a person is struggling and having a hard time for them to know we are a company that values you and your overall wellness, including your mental health, employees might take an opportunity to go talk to a counselor. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of my clients in the past two years had never even considered counseling before mm -hmm. because they just hadn't needed it up until that point. And then I think we, keep, we can treat it like cultural competency trainings, you know, um, managing conflict in the work environment, communication in the work environment. You can do sort of like seminars and you can do trainings, you know, whether they're virtual or whatnot, to start to change the language of these cultures, to start to let them know, hey, this is what we're on board with. We would like for you to come on board with us to make this a healthier work environment for everybody. But I really think it has to start at that upper management, learning the skills and buying into that value. Absolutely. And so just so I understand, because I didn't, I didn't ever really associate trauma with a professional environment. Can, can there be trauma in a workplace or can you talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to sort of, so trauma is an interesting thing because a lot of times we minimize trauma. We think about PTSD or some sort of like uh, natural disaster, some sort of abuse, but power dynamics and unhealthy cultures can lead to very traumatic interactions. Um, if people are feeling um, put down or if they're feeling unheard, if they're being taken advantage of, being worked to the bone, so to speak, our bodies can have a natural trauma response to that, not to mention our own personal traumas that are being brought into our work environments. And so for upper management, for HR, for, you know, CEOs to be aware that we want to be cognizant about the fact that we are working with human beings here who respond to things differently, who perceive things differently, who are coming from different cultures and experiences, it gives us this, this space to say, maybe I need to take better care of my employees in that way by creating environments that aren't maybe that that if there is something in the environment that can cause harm, maybe reevaluating that and saying, is there another way for me to, to approach this with them? But burnout can oftentimes manifest as trauma, you know, especially in the last two years, we've kind of gone through this global trauma, right? And we've all been interact. In, we've all been impacted on personal levels mm -hmm. um, 
with what's happened around us in our economy, with our physical health and world. And people are going to be bringing those trauma and therefore their trauma triggers into their work environments because you can't separate that. So to be trauma-informed, to have a trauma-informed environment helps us navigate when a trauma trigger happens. How can I, as as a staff member, as a CEO, as HR, how can I navigate and manage that well, remembering that my employees are people, you know? not just replaceable. Yeah, that's super powerful. I had, I honestly had no idea, um, you know, that that was something, but it makes a ton of sense, um, you know, and and being able to have that, that true understanding of that impact of the workplace, Mm -hmm. because we spend so much time there, right? Uh, And understanding that it has to be a place of inclusivity, and it also has to match your culture, right, as a person, Mm -hmm. and what your, your goals are. So absolutely, that's such good information. Um, I want to get into a little bit about digital transformation. And so digital transformation we kind of talked about is when any company is going through a technology uh, change, whether it's an upgrade, mm-hmm. implementation, new software selection. And this can be a time of really high stress for Absolutely. not only the leadership of the company because of the investment, time and resources, but also the project execution team. Um, So I want to start at kind of a top-down approach like we talked about. One of the keys to success for digital transformation is executive alignment, which can be one of the hardest things to secure Mm -hmm. because of the behavior and personalities of a typical Mm -hmm. executive group. So if you are going through a digital transformation or really any strategic initiative and need to solidify that alignment, what are some of the things from a human behavior standpoint we should consider when working with an executive tier of a company? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things that we want to look at. And I think that this will actually be the whole trickle down. People in general don't do great with change. You know, we have going back to that security thing, some of those animalistic ways that we respond to things are in our fight, 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 flight, and freeze. And so what happens when we've got an executive team is we're bringing different people with different personalities to the table that are going to have different objectives, different opinions, um, different priorities, different values. And so I agree that it's so important at the top tier that we're a united front. Because if you are, I mean, think about it with parenting, right? If, if, two parents are not on the same page with their kids, they're going to triangulate. Like Mm -hmm. if they know dad always lets them have the fruit snacks and mom doesn't let them have the fruit snacks, they're going to go to dad first. And if mom says no, they're probably going to go to dad afterwards and hope that the two of them aren't communicating. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously as adults, we have outgrown a lot of that behaviors, but not necessarily at the core. We always are trying to, you know, have our needs and objectives met. And so I think recognizing things like different personalities, being aligned on things like company and cultural values of our company, and making sure that the changes that we're ruling out, we are on the same page with. That might be calling in a professional to help you navigate Mm -hmm. if you cannot reach that united front on your own that might be compromising in certain things. But I think that, you know, personalities, baseline responses to things, cultures, those sorts of things are all going to impact when we're moving forward a systematic change and getting on the same page, understanding communication styles, learning skills for healthy communications. That's where consultants can be really helpful if for some reason we're not able to get on that same page on our own. Absolutely. 
Yeah, totally. And I, I think you, um, you know, you do our subtle sales messaging better than we do now when it comes to consultants. And and we always joke um, here that our change practitioners are really therapists that go into mm -hmm. the actual piece. And I definitely want to get into that in just a little bit. But when it comes to the project team, like we talked about, these might be people that are putting in 60 hours a week for an, a temporary amount of time because mm -hmm. they are implementing this technology. And it might be going really well in one area of the business, but completely failing in another. And that's, you know, obviously a huge mm -hmm. point of stress. So if you are a project leader or something like that, or even an employee in your own awareness, mm -hmm. how can you make sure that burnout doesn't happen in those times mm -hmm. of really high stress. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough balance to accomplish for sure. But bringing back into our overall wellness is the first place we're going to want to look at. So if we know that there's a temporary stressor, like for the next three months, I'm going to be working 60 hours, right? Mm -hmm. I think that upper, that upper management, the leadership, that sort of thing, we can look at that and we can recognize it. So anything that we can take off of the plates of somebody who has a temporary um, job change as they're trying to move something forward can be helpful in offering that same amount of support. The other thing is we might want to consider um, creating time and space in those projects for self-care, whether that's, hey, on Friday of the third Friday every month, I want you to take a half a day. I know we've got a lot to go. I know that there's a lot of pressure, but it's important for you to take care of yourself right? Um, PTO benefits, things like that. Maybe even if it's in the budget, sending a gift card to a steak restaurant where they can go take a night with whoever their loved ones are and decompress. Showing that physiological support in this difficult time, recognizing that it's temporary, using that language and encouragement of saying, hey, you're doing a great job. I know that this is hard, you know, and then again, alleviating some of the things that we can. So like if uh, previous job functionings are maybe not as important right now. Is there somebody else that can take over that so they're not juggling all their regular things and then the new things on top of it? You know, really being sort of mindful of it being temporary and getting everybody on the same page of recon recognizing this, we can do this, we can do this hard thing right now, we've got each other's backs. And I think that that is going to also involve each individual learning how to manage their own stress. Because what happens, I think, a lot of times is that we don't do a good job managing our own stressors, and then we can take things out on our employees or our coworkers. Right. And we maybe are brash, we're maybe too quick, we're maybe too rigid, and then that trickles down to them, knocks them off. They're now afraid about the security of their job and productivity and round and round we go. Right. So making sure that everybody that's a part of that team is caring for themselves. Obviously, you can't force somebody to do self-care. But again, going back into that environment, can we find an hour? Can we take a break? Can we have a coffee break? Can we, you know, if is losing that one hour or was working that one hour worth the potential benefits of supporting my team? Does that absolutely. sort of answer your question? Oh, absolutely. You totally nailed it as you've done this entire time. It's like you're a, a you know, a, a pro at, at live stream podcasting. So <laughs> perfect. This is my first one, actually. Oh my goodness. Well, you're not your last one with the way you're doing. No, I'm just <laughs> 
So taking that and scaling it in a different area, because I think it's so important, you know, what you said about being able to make those um, not only communicate that the benefit or that the project is temporary, but also looking at the benefits and making sure that you're creating that space, carving out that space for um, self-care. I wonder what your take would be on um, multinational companies and and um, cultures. You know, for example, we work as a global consultancy, and so we might have uh, a manufacturing plant in um, Zimbabwe, and then we might have a distribution area in London, and then you know a, a different leg of the organization in Seattle. And so sometimes it can be really difficult bringing together all of those cultures because I think mm -hmm. a lot of times many of those executives kind of sit in their office and they say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to tell them they all need to do this and mm -hmm. don't realize the impact that culture yes. can have. So I wondered mm -hmm. if you could speak to that a little bit on how they could be mindful that these are completely different entities, not yes. only multinationally, but throughout an organization, those mm -hmm. sub as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it is probably one of the most vital things that anybody in that's a CEO managing a company, managing people can do is be aware and mindful of cultural competencies. It is probably understanding mental health and cultural competencies is probably two of the most important things that we really do need to do. And now there's trainings that you can take, cultural competency trainings, which is obviously only one part of it. But the next piece of it is really doing our diligence to actually be communicating with our counterparts and asking them their preferences and their needs. You know, I think a lot of times what we sort of do, especially in this very, uh, you know, productivity focused culture, right? Time is money. That's what we hear all of the time. And we have deadlines to meet. We have, you know, all sorts of, of barriers to getting these things done, but to be able to take time and to say, hey, this is what we're thinking. What do you think about that? Does that feel, feel like it will work with your team? And also posturing ourselves in a way that says, please, if that's not going to work with you, let me know. Right. I, I don't necessarily think we need to go in there and say, tell me what's offensive to you. Right. Because that might be offensive. And so instead, it's going to be going in there and really treating and under under doing our own work to understand cultures, but also creating an environment that is is inclusive of a decision making, you know, mm -hmm. especially like, you know, you think about there are some uh, Muslim cultures that pray at certain times yeah. in a day. And mm -hmm. so if you're working with somebody who has very strong religious point of views, it might be offensive if you are trying to, if you're pushing to schedule a meeting during a time that is important for their religious mm -hmm. practice, mm -hmm. you know, also time differences. You know, one of the things that I, I've learned about people in France is that people in France, uh, the school system is all like backwards. Like okay. they take a really long lunch break. Everybody comes home and has lunch as a family, you know, like oh, wow. because okay. we don't really know or they take months off for vacations, which yeah. I really wish we would buy into that one. Me too. Me too. But, I'm, I'm going you know, to so yeah. because we just to be aware that there are cultural um cultural things that play here, even not only with nation, national cultures, but within our own society, there are different cultural barriers that we need to be aware of. So keeping an open posture, asking people from different cultures, their preferences, um, their input, their feedback, 
opening up that conversation is going to be a huge part of it because then we're not making assumptions. I think it's when we make assumptions that we really do sort of make fools of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Versus actually just checking in and saying, is this okay? And that Mm -hmm. can go a really long way, I think. But again, there's consultants for cultural competency trainings that I do very much so recommend. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. And and that brings me kind of to my my next piece of it. Obviously, we do a ton in organizational change management. And one of our biggest barriers is not having, I would say, a communication competency is what I would build off of the cultural competency in the fact that many times we are we might be working with an IT focused team, even though we do promote diversity within the core cultural team mostly, so that our businesses can get an understanding of, oh, this affects you in this way in that department. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And opening up that channel for communication. Uh, but a lot of times we struggle with helping organizations to understand that organizational change management is actually the number one key to implementing any new technology. And it Mm -hmm. is not just an email. So in a scenario where you have a new technology entering an employee's sphere of, of influence or experience, right? And they're, they're just told like, hey, we're turning on this new system. Half your job is now automated. And all of a sudden we have this huge pocket of resistance because they're like, whoa, our robots taking over the world. What's mm-hmm. happening? Especially <laughs> in our current climate with emerging technologies such as Absolutely. AI, predictive analytics, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So how can we as um, organizational change consultants or business leaders understand the impact of telling someone half your job will now be automated in a way that is not going to be the scariest thing you've ever Mm -hmm. said to someone in a work environment. Yes. And that will, I mean, the way that we present this can very much so lead to panic. And panic is one of the strongest emotions we can experience. Panic, anger, fear, all of that stuff becomes really overpowering and will very much so cloud the judgment of the person who's experiencing that. And so if we're going back to the model of understanding security, I think a lot of times people don't do well with change because they're fearful. They don't know what that's going to mean for them. And so making sure that we're taking the time to say, this is part of your job is going to be automated. This is how it's going to change your job. But to be able to assure if this is the case, your pay is going to be the same. You're still a valued employee. We have other opportunities that we want to explore that we will need you to be a part of. Because I think that, you know, with anything, people are afraid of being pushed out of their security, of their, you know, this culture, this place that has been important to them. You know, I think about it with um, even going back is to just different cultures or different generations, looking at this sort of like email culture. You know, my dad is 60, I think five or something like that. And I love to tease him because he texts like this, you know, one finger and he types one finger. And part of what I have to recognize is my dad's doing a great job keeping up with Um, technology is changing. But a lot of our older demographics of employees, they didn't have computers, they didn't have laptops, they didn't Mm -hmm. have cell phones. And so when they see another system change, there becomes this fear sometimes of, will I be able to keep up? Am I adequate? Am I enough? Mm 
You know, changing somebody's job, especially if they've been in it for a while, can be very fearful. So so offering trainings when a system trains, letting them know that their job is secure, letting them know what it is that we will be asking of them since this portion of our job is no longer is now going automatic. Also explaining the benefits for the company and for them by automating the system, right? Is it going to save us money? Is it going to, you know, uh, free up their time to do other things? I think that's where communication is so important. Um, And our temptation is just, here's an email, we're doing it, you know, because I said so. And people in general don't do well with because I said so. They want to know and have understanding of why the system's changing and how it will benefit them. Absolutely. I mean, that's so important, that assurance piece and, and really understanding the, the importance behind that because much of the resistance is often unintentional. Mm-hmm. Teresa, our change practitioner, always says, and I'll steal her line here, people don't come to do a bad job. There just might be this level of um, insecurity around their their security within the workplace. So definitely well said. Um, we also struggle, and I'd love to get your take on kind of this misinformation sometimes. So mm-hmm. there's kind of this rumor mill type of water cooler culture where mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're you're talking about a new system for supply chain management. And now they're saying, well, we're redoing all the finances of the business. And that kind of that talks is toxicity, excuse me, moves through the Mm -hmm. overall lower or upper sometimes tier of the organization. Mm -hmm. So how can you help to manage any misinformation around your new technology in defining it and communicating it so you don't create this unrest or disruption within Mm -hmm. your overall company culture? Mm-hmm. Again, I think this is going to be one of those trickle down things. I think there's a couple of like very practical things we can do. And then there's a couple of very specific things we can do. I think from a practical point of view, um, opening up communications, maybe it's newsletters, maybe it's videos where CEOs are explaining the changes. Maybe it's meetings that the um, management department is reading, meeting with each of their team to make sure that they answer any questions they might have to create that support. That's one of the ways that we can do those things. The other thing once the wildfire has been sparked, so to speak, that we can do is something called relational immediacy. Um, A lot of times when we're experiencing, say we're out at lunch and we hear a coworker rattling off something, we kind of buy into the drama, right? We sort of are like, oh no, because they're speaking about my fears, right? What are my fears? I want to be valued. I want to feel secure. I want to be seen. I want to, I want to feel like I have a purpose. And, you know, if somebody else is fueling that, that's going to make that fire grow so much faster. So nixing those things when we see it, that's going to start on a a cultural baseline. And that's really going to be peer to peer. Mm -hmm. And so if we're creating a positive, if managers are creating a positive, you know, empowering environment for their employees, I might hear a coworker say something and be like, you know, that's not what my manager said. You know, it sounds like we're maybe getting kind of upset about that. Maybe we should go talk to them and find out. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can start to train and model that, through those one-on-one relationships, manager to staff, we might be able to cut some of that off at the pass. 
Or if we are a manager and we're hearing about these things, instead of buying into the drama and being like, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, right? That's going to just not, that's going to create this power differentiation that's just going to be ugly. Instead, what we can do is go back and revisit that. If we're catching wind that there are things that are going on, we're going to call a meeting and we're going to open the floor, question and answer. And we're going to be prepared to respond to that. But it's keeping the eye out and the ear out to make sure that we are trying to, you know, correct any misinformation to the best of our ability is really, really probably the best approach for that. Building those relationships so people feel comfortable, but then also making sure that we are sharing enough, which I know adds another layer of complication because our managers, our CEOs are really busy. And so mm-hmm. that's where getting involved with tech teams, doing videos during off hours, you know, having somebody responsible for a newsletter or something like that. We can definitely delegate some of that communication, but that communication is imperative. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so well said. And in, in being able to understand the importance of needing that communication or at least templatizing, right, that ability to do that within your management tier so that you are able to kind of buck that, that really important middle management tier. Because that's really, you know, what creates that subculture and that experience for that employee. So definitely. Well, in our last couple minutes here, Brie, I, I want to ask you about data, which is something we don't typically associate with um, organizational change management or human behavior. But for us, it's a way for us to showcase to our clients or help our clients create awareness, specifically at the executive level, around what are some measurements of your culture's ability to change, of their readiness to change, Mm -hmm. and just their overall perception of your business through their human behavior. And the ultimate success piece of a digital transformation is user adoption, which mm-hmm. inherently is defined as a human behavior, right? The user mm-hmm. has to be engaging with the new system. How you, as a human behavior professional and expert, how would you measure human behavior or the current climate of overall employee perception within an organization? So very practical way. So measurement data is so important. It's important in all of our fields. As therapists, we do the same thing. We have different uh, measurement tests, our generalized anxiety scores, our PHQ-9, which has to do with, you know, depression scales. It's important for us to see how did you feel when we started? How are you feeling now? How do you feel when you end? So when we do our treatment programs, that's a four-week program, we'll ask the same set of questions at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. And so I think gathering that information is a really important piece here. And there are different survey monkeys, things that you can put together that are specific to your cultural needs, but it's it's continuing to collect the data. When we roll out a new system, how did you feel after that training? How are you feeling with the competency here? After you've been working that system for a little bit, same questions three months later. Are we seeing difference? Are we still experiencing resistance? Have people adapted? Because if at that three-month mark, we're still experiencing resistance or having problems with it, we might have to go back and troubleshoot and say, what do we need to do to get everybody on board with this? And so I think sending out surveys, having one-on-one conversations to collect that data and be able to keep track of it, here's what people are saying. Here's how they're experiencing the systematic change. Here's how they're experiencing the new software. Here are the troubles points for them. 
breaking that down into our age demographics is another piece of it. Are my millennials and Gen Xers getting this a lot quicker than my mm -hmm. boomers, you know, and, you know, what are, what's going on here? Do I need to offer extra support and training for these people who are struggling? And what does that look like? So I think really asking questions and asking them again is another huge piece of this. I don't think it's like a one question, one survey is going to get yeah. the, the information across, you know? Yeah, that consistency and frequency sounds like that's absolutely key to measuring human behavior and the change mm -hmm. in trends. And you can ask questions about how do you feel about it? Like from yeah. a scale of one to 10, how confident do you feel on mm -hmm. using the software? From a scale of one to 10, how like, or like, are, like maybe even we list the emotions, right? Like our like anxiety scale of one to 10, you know, overwhelm scale of one to 10. And really, I mean, you can tailor it based upon, of course, whatever you're presenting. But I think being able to create even text box within that where people can say specifically what their concerns are or what they're struggling with. But then I think the key from the leadership point of view is that we're not taking those surveys and doing nothing with it, right. that we're taking those surveys as an opportunity to listen to and offer support where there is problematic areas. Absolutely. And I, I think that's key to overall employee perception too. Mm -hmm. you know, creating that circle of feedback of saying, hey, I saw that you put this on a survey. These are the action steps that I'm doing as a leader to make sure that you're felt you feel heard and then your purpose is being met. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, is a, a huge piece as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so, it's so interesting. I love talking tech and psychology because, you know, it's so different, but it's also so necessary for all of us. Like, I mean, oh, I yes. use tech every day at my job to track things and to document and, you know. Yeah. It. And human behavior comes into our world in every conversation that we have. And I think Parisa popped it up here for us. I, I wrote a blog this week on um, creativity and technology and how really that is the key to that digital transformation piece because you need that really catalyst to being able mm -hmm. to creatively understand and absorb how your team is feeling or it's mm -hmm. never going to be successful. It's just not, Absolutely. you know, you cannot at this day and age force force a technology on, on people. It's just not a, something that's going to happen in this employee marketplace. And it's just not something that you want to do because it's, it's mm -hmm. not going to maximize your business value as Absolutely. well. And ultimately, too, if people can't change with the programs as they're changing and they are quitting their jobs, we're adding so many costs to right. hiring, to training, to all of that stuff. And so it might feel sort of like a little bit of that pressure of being like, oh, well, this is annoying to have to keep coming back and to yeah. keep doing training. But to keep that long term perspective is that we want to have employee retention. That's important for our companies and our businesses, too. And so recognizing those behaviors offering environments of support, making people feel valued, seen, and secure, all of those things I think are going to be massively important if we want to have effective and successful businesses. Well said. We should put that on a t-shirt, seen <laughs> and secure. I think that's what we should do. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and insight today, Bria. It's been so cool to talk to you and um, be able to understand how important understanding a human behavior really is to a digital transformation and, and just in general in our workplace life and overall experience. Okay. Thanks, Kyler and Bree. That was a really interesting conversation. Um, going deep into the psyche of organizations and employees within the organization. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll debrief and uh, dive into some of those 
takeaways from that conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 69. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. Kyla, we just had uh, Bree on the show, and what were your takeaways from your conversation with her? Yeah, Bree's always great because she kind of bridges the gap um, in being an industrial psychologist in the and specializing in the workplace between you know therapy and human behavior and how that manifests in the workplace. And I learned a lot from her, especially around employee burnout and what that looks like in identifying employee burnout um, in different organizations and management structures too. Um, specifically in that employee, employee burnout and putting it in actual metrics is um, really expensive to organizations, uh, especially a lot of times when it is some sort of, you know, mental health issue or um, over stress, those types of things, because uh, legally you're going to have to pay, you know, the short-term disability or those types of things to have that employee be actually treated. Um, so that was something that I thought was was really interesting. And hopefully, you know, you can manage um, your employee and, and have those types of conversations before that actually happens. But that's a, a great kind of business value case to add those kind of sort of mental health awareness coaching for your management team so that they can identify those different red flags when it comes to an employee that might have an issue or, or um, be struggling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good reminder that, you know, there's a lot of stressors in organizational life daily, especially if you're talking about going through change and digital transformation, business transformation, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. She also um, had this term that she, that she coined, um, basically it's business trauma. And I didn't even think mm -hmm. about that. So say you were at a, a workplace that, you know, had a really stiff culture, that took advantage of its employees. It just was an overall bad experience. You bring a lot of those behaviors into a new company or your relationship with an, a new organization, even if you know it's it's not that organization that caused that type of emotional response. So I, you know, obviously I don't think about trauma in usually a professional stand standpoint, but it was interesting to say that that same sort of trauma based thinking. Um, that happens, you know, when you do go through a traumatic experience can be the same in a business environment too, um, that employees, you know, can bring over to a new organization. Yeah, it's, I guess it's sort of like a relationship, you know, you bring your, we bring our baggage to our personal relationships. And similarly, in organizations, we, we do the same thing. And I think that's so important for a leadership mentality to understand 
is, you know, there is a reason why this employee or this person or stakeholder is acting this way. There's a reason for that response. Um, and then maybe taking a step back and, and looking at it with some empathy, obviously, depending on the situation, could be really powerful and a, definitely a, a change in course for that overall resource. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting, too. Yeah, that's a great point and in, in something that I think is, you know, helpful on a number of fronts, whether it's helping alleviate or mitigate uh, pressure within an organization, um, whether it's just related, understanding coworkers, understanding your superiors, if you're a consultant, understanding your clients, um, all that stuff. I think it's it's sort of a, a pretty, um, it, there's a lot of cross-discipline or, or cross-benefit to that. Yeah, we always talk about how our consultants are actually therapists, um, which I even felt way better after talking to Bree. It was like a therapy session for myself, you know. Right. So, I do too. It's just, you know, it's just a, a, a piece of clarity that she brings to the table, which our, our consultants do the same thing. And it's almost like a validation of digital transformation is hard. Any new technology implementation is hard. And having that just overall message to say, you know, we're going to figure this out, but it's okay to kind of sit in that awareness of this is a big, challenging moment. And there's a lot of stress built up in that. And I think just let letting that have space, like she said, you don't have to know the answer to everything right now, but just acknowledging that we know that you're, you know, working 60 hours a week to make sure this new technology is implemented appropriately. We know that, you know, this is a, a difficult time for the team to go through all of these changes, but we're committed to getting through it together. And and um, that overall just validation, I, I think, was something that I think our consultants do all the time that may seem small, but as she said, is so important. Yeah, I mean, listening, like you said, listening and, and empathy is uh, a big part of navigating change. I mean, you, you have to do that to have that baseline understanding before you can help people navigate that journey. So it's uh, really well well said what you said there. Yeah, and I, I think my final thought and reaction after it marinating a little bit is just the overall investment that companies put into employee wellness features might not seem like a lot, but could end up costing you much less money in the long run if you do invest in those types of insurance, if you will, up front. So just looking at it from from that fact is is interesting, I think, perspective for business leaders too. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't couldn't agree more. And it was good good to have her on the show. I mean, I, I, I'm glad you you had that interview and that discussion. Sort of reminds me of uh, you know, two two people we had in the past. Uh, Jed Hafer mm -hmm. is a guest that we've had twice on the show. So if you if you go back to any of our archives or back to the playlist or the previous episodes of this show, wherever you're listening or watching, you can uh, find Jed Hafer's interviews. Those are really good, where we talk about organizational psychology. And then we also had uh, Christina Serrano uh, on mm -hmm. the show, who's not a psychologist per se, but she's very much uh, an academic that focuses on um, the applied science of behavior, human behavior and change management. So uh, those are a couple of other follow-ups that I'd go check out from previous episodes if you missed those already. Absolutely. So, well, good. Well, yeah, thank you for that, Kyler. Thanks for that uh, interview and all the other great content here today. Thank you to the audience for listening in. Uh, you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. Be sure to check us out, subscribe to the show, 
and uh, leave us a review and comments as well. We always love to hear, you know, what we, what we can do to make the show better or guests or topics you think it would be of interest. So we'd love to hear your feedback there. So uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, hope you all have a great week. Thanks and take care. Thank you.